Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Happy Saturday and happy March, everybody. It looks like even here in the upper Midwest, we are tilting towards spring, and I um, certainly eager for that to happen. Uh, we have a uh, f- fabulous, fabulous set of guests today. So this time is going to go really very fast. So strap in, make yourself comfortable. It's going to be fun. Look, um, before we get to the guests, y- y- you know, um, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in, in democracies here and abroad in, in Mexico. Elections are publicly funded, and there's a large and well-paid bureaucracy that manages them. Those funds have become a big target for President Lopez Obrador, who says this money should be spent on the poor. He says the people's will is thwarted by elitists in the bureaucracy. And over in Israel, the judiciary, which has always been independent, a force for the rule of law over the passions in a country perpetually concerned about security. Uh, Over there, Prime Minister Netanyahu sees the judiciary not as independent, but as unaccountable. And he wants to make the judiciary responsive to voters by giving the Knesset, their legislature, more control over judges. Lopez Obrador and Netanyahu both claim to represent the popular will. And, and, And they seek to empower their people by weakening institutions of government that are by design removed from the partisan passions of electoral politics. This is rhetoric of uh, despots everywhere. Look, democracies are complicated. And in a social media and soundbite driven era, complicated is hard to defend. But uh, here's the thing. You know, whether or not we succeed in educating ourselves about the importance of separation of powers, about the need to establish a judiciary that's independent and protected from partisan forces, the idea of democracy is so deeply entwined with the idea of individual freedom that people everywhere will resist efforts to erode it. As many as a half a million Mexicans protested in Zocalo Square in the nation's capital. In Israel, about 100,000 have been protesting on the streets of Tel Aviv. Lopez Obrador and Netanyahu mock the protesters. They promise to push through the reforms they claim are necessary for the protection of their democracy. (laughs) But in Mexico, people remember the PRI, which bent the rules to remain in power for decades. And in Israel, there is an understandable and almost existential loathing of fascists. I think they will uh, be able to hold on. But what about us? What about us? Well, look, if I had to pick the one thing that distinguishes us from every other country in the world, it is our deep sense of individual liberty. Alone amongst all countries, when we Americans hear those powerful words, we the people, we don't think of a mass of, of, you know, one unified mass of people. We think of a collection of individuals. 
each empowered, each called upon to make her own decisions, each asked to own his own actions, each required to find their own path. Only in America would Walt Whitman come out of a civil war celebrating each individual blade of grass, each unique soul he met. Because democracy and individual liberty are so linked, autocrats always pair their attacks on democracies with efforts to suppress individual expression, a rainbow flag, a book, a college lecture. Today, the MAGA GOP in states like Florida, Iowa, Texas, Idaho, you name it, aim to narrow our minds and attack our individuality. And in the Capitol, their partisan and illegitimate Supreme Court hopes to give them more tools to do so. Enter Moore versus Harper, and we've talked about this before. This case considers a fringe legal argument that would never have had a hearing if the court were making um, judicial rather than partisan decisions. This case poses the same question facing Israelis, only worse. In Israel, the goal is to make the legislature partisan. Here, an already partisan court seeks to make the rest of the judicial system irrelevant. The case argues that only state legislatures have a say about elections. Only. Can't be appealed. No one else has a say. And the court has already ruled in their terrible Rucho decision that federal courts can't consider cases that involve gerrymandering. That decision and the expected one in Moore versus Harper mean that gerrymandered legislatures not only get to stay that way, but they get to control every electoral ruling moving forward. This cannot be allowed. And you know what? As big a threat as it is, I'm confident that we will stand it down. In in July of 2017, right after Donald Trump's election, sorry, January of 2017, it was still really cold, um, and, and sensing what was coming, 400,000 people took to the streets uh, in New York for the Women's March. 150,000 came out in cold Chicago, 750,000 in Los Angeles, in all more than two and a half million marched on that day. And those marches were just the opening act of one of the most important, impressive, and effective mobilizations in history. In the years since, organizations, and there are dozens of them, like Swing Left, Run for Something, Demcast, you name it, lots of them have been on this show. They've helped millions of Americans find on-ramps to political participation. And traditional Democratic parties have evolved um, to become in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, forces for social mobilization that not only factor in electoral politics, but they've brought people together to knit back the fabric of our communities that had been so frayed. Look, it's always dangerous when autocrats control the levels of power. I hope the Israelis can save their democracy. I hope the Mexicans can restore theirs. I know we will keep ours. And I know it because of people you're going to meet later in this show. I know that because the, not, you know, the threat is real and I don't want to undermine it. But each of us is stronger and braver than the bullying autocrats with their threatening red waves. We know that when they come for trans kids, they're coming for us. When they make it harder for some folks to vote, they're making it harder for us to vote. When they bring their weapons to school board meetings, they're aiming at us. 
and all of it with their lies, their conspiracies, their collusion, our individual decisions to mobilize, to share facts, to look out for each other. This has dragged that stuff into the light. We're a couple of election cycles into this fight, and we have yet more in front of us. But we are claiming the high ground and holding it. Look, there was a time when Fox watching autocrats, they they pretended the American flag was their own and waved at all their rallies and they wrapped themselves in it in every possible way. But you know what? We've taken it back. All they have left to wrap themselves in are the Confederate stars and bars. You know what? We're not going to rest. And this show, you're going to hear from people who've been in the forefront of this massive, massive change that is um, saving our democracy. We're going to take um, a first break now so that when I come back, Tara McGowan can join us and we can just get right into it. Stay tuned. We're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. All right. Welcome back, everyone. And as I said, this is going to go very fast today because all my guests are superheroes, starting with Tara McGowan, who is really remarkable in a country divided by misinformation, disinformation, outright lies. She's pioneered an effective way of getting real information to people. She looked at the legacy models of news organizations and understood their limitations before almost anyone else even saw a problem. And and how do you get news to people when credible sources put up paywalls and social media algorithms favor outrage? Tara figured it out. And, uh, and created courier newsroom to meet that need. We've talked a number of times here on this show. She is brilliant, hardworking, and thank goodness, very effective. Tara, welcome back. Thank you so much, Edwin. It's so good to be with you again. It's been a while since we've talked on this show. So will you take a minute and tell everybody about Courier Newsroom? Sure, of course. You you were very flattering in your introduction, but uh, Courier Newsroom is a network of state and local newsrooms across the country. Um, We have reporters and editors and content producers on the ground in eight states. Um, We are in Arizona, Florida, Iowa, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Wisconsin. Uh, your listeners, I'm sure, very clearly understand why we are in these states. This is These are battleground states, not only political battlegrounds, but increasingly battlegrounds where the culture wars are being fought and also where disinformation and misinformation and just straight lies and divisive information and content from the far right are spreading the fastest because of their political power and implications. And so um, we reach people with factual, local and relevant news. We cover politics and political issues in a very human and community centered way. We are values driven. Uh, We are very unapologetic about our values. Um, Some people label them as progressive, but actually they're really just popular. Um, We believe climate change is real and requires urgent, immediate action. Uh, We believe that reproductive freedom and abortion rights and access are absolutely necessary. Um, uh, Social racial justice is critical. Um, And so we we wear our values very proudly, and that definitely informs our reporting. Um, But we also reach Americans who just don't proactively look for good information or news any longer, which is an increasing um, population in this country. They are getting their information by passively scrolling social media. 
So our reporters report the news, both political news, as I mentioned, as well as just local, cultural, lifestyle, sports, food, travel, um, in a way that is native to Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and through email newsletters. So we really, we really prioritize meeting people where they are um, and helping cut through uh, a lot of the BS online and also just make information more accessible and more digestible and more, um, more relevant to people because a lot of political reporting in America is not very accessible to most Americans. It's much, it's very much reported on and written for, for elites and for high information political people like us. Um, and so we really try to, to meet uh, the majority of Americans in a way that, that they will get informed and engaged in our democracy. Okay. I hope everybody paid attention because there's a lot there. This, this, mm, this method that you've pioneered of reporting out through social media, the way you have, um, it, uh, it's had real impact. It had real impact in the midterms. And, and that's not my opinion. You've actually studied this, right? With randomized samples and, and very, um, uh, rigorous studies. That's right. We are, um, we have a good team of data nerds. Um, I can I fancy myself one, even though I'm not a data expert. Um, I I was a I was a journalist a really long time ago. I left journalism for politics in 2009, and one of the things that really always frustrated me in journalism was that unless you were writing for the New York Times and exposing some you know massive scandal or corruption, it was very difficult to know if your journalism was having an impact. And that has gotten much harder in such a decentralized and noisy information ecosystem today. And so when I worked in politics and I ran um, really large-scale digital advertising programs, I learned a lot about how you could measure the impact of information and ads in particular on different segments of the population. Um, Platforms like Facebook and Google have made targeting um, very, very, very easy and scary in certain ways. Um, it's controversial, but it's why, you know, people are followed by ads of products they've said they need out loud in front of their phone or they have searched for on Google. Um, there's just very sophisticated technology. And so we learned how to target um, specific or populations and audiences when I was running digital ad programs. And when I made the decision to start Courier in 2019, I wanted to pair that intelligence and that approach to targeting and measurement to news, because my big hunch was that local news was was much more effective at reaching and informing people than political advertisements or advocacy ads. And and not to not to manipulate people like the right does, but just to put good information in front of them. And then measure if that actually had an impact on their awareness level, um, their political engagement level, and ultimately their civic participation. And so we have run over 100 of these in-field experiments where we, we uh, survey our audiences before and after they've received our news. And we also match our audiences to the voter file in states after elections to see if they turned out. And we withhold control groups who don't get our news um, in the various ways that we deliver it. And we compare the folks that don't get our news to the ones who do. And every single time we have run one of these experiments, we have found that we have a statistically significant impact on increasing their turnout in elections. 
and we don't measure who they vote for. We don't tell them who to vote for. Um, we just provide factual information about their candidates and their positions on issues that matter to them. Um, and then we see if they if they vote. And most of our audiences are not people who vote in most elections. And so it's really um, profoundly rewarding and exciting to see that, that just by delivering factual news to people on social media, we can get them more informed and more motivated to participate and to vote in elections. Well, I, I would think being able to demonstrate your impact on civic participation would help you in a lot of ways. Um, and the one that I'm thinking of in particular here has to do with funding, because when you opted to, um, um, uh, uh, I guess, optimize for social media, not drive people to websites, you f- forewent a category of revenue that lots of journalism organizations rely on. So talk about your revenue streams. Yeah, sure. And it's a really interesting point because there's, there's, so some journalists get very itchy. Um, and I'm sure some people listening to me talk about our model might get a little itchy and hearing about the fact that we use data and we measure impact when it comes to, to, to politics and voting. But what I would say is that every media company and news organization in the country measures their success by some type of metric. And unfortunately, usually it's measured by revenue. <laughs> usually it's measured by how many clicks they've gotten, how many site visitors they've gotten to their website so they can sell more advertisements. And so that informs their journalism and their content and what they choose to cover and how because they are trying to optimize for the most clicks and money, ad dollars. And what we want to do at Courier is optimize for the greatest impact on civic participation and inform civic participation. So I don't think it's... Um, a negative thing at all. I actually want this to become something that becomes very popular among uh, good information sources and news organizations because the technology and the methodologies exist. So what that also means, though, to your question, Edwin, is that we don't have a traditional revenue model because we don't want to in uh, we don't want to be incentivized to put content that just drives people to websites. When, frankly, the audience we care about, they don't read articles. Um, you know, I, I find it difficult increasingly to read long articles, and it's because our attention spans are different. We're busy, and we have these platforms now that aggregate information in a very quick and skimmable way. And so that has changed our behavior, and we have to meet people with that. And so it creates a challenge of, okay, how do you stay in business? How do you keep growing? And when I started Courier, we made a very intentional decision that we were going to be explicit about the fact that this was going to need to be subsidized and funded by philanthropy and mission-aligned partners and organizations who wanted, uh, who were aware and shared our concern about the problem of right-wing media and disinformation um, and wanted to create a better and scalable solution. So, um, most of our funding comes from uh, mission-aligned, pro-democracy, and left-leaning nonprofit organizations and foundations. They do not influence our journalism. We have a firewall, but they do underwrite our ability to cover specific issues, like the war on public schools in America that the MAGA right is waging right now, which I'm sure you'll be talking about with other guests, too, today on the program and that our newsrooms have been covering heavily, and like the war on reproductive freedom and access by the extreme right. And so we 
we have absolutely no problem. In fact, we feel very aligned with our partners um, and the resources that they're able to give us so we can dedicate reporting coverage to these issues and do it in a way that, again, is very local and relevant to these audiences. Um, because the way that it's talked about on cable news and talk radio and in the New York Times is just not telling the stories or centering the Americans who are living through the impacts of these really dangerous and extreme um, uh, legislations and bill proposals that are coming from the right. Um, so this question of, you know, how what modern journalism is in a democracy like ours is so subtle and important. And, and you have a point of view on it that I think needs uh, um, a bigger and bigger platform. The, the right uh, in America claims that any journalism that varies from its dogma is just leftist propaganda. And the left and the right doesn't try to claim that its own news is news anymore. They just they just live in a world where it's their story. Their worldview is their news. And that that's why you could have you, you could have, you know, them talking about, well, you can have your reality and we have ours. I mean, it's crazy stuff. Right. Um, but that's how they think, really. Uh, it's a post reality world. Uh, at least the one we find ourselves in today. So honest journalism, which always is going to favor the reality that the rest of us live in, therefore now leans democratic. So we have this appearance of partisanship in news um, because, because one side has so radicalized itself, it's taken itself away from a fact-based world. And journalists focus on accuracy and fairness and balance. And that just is not... It, it, and that just favors one side now. So how do you defend yourself against claims that you're just a left-leaning version of the same agitprop they practice every day? Yeah, it is. It's definitely a question that I get quite a bit. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you that I, I really, so Courier turns four years old in June. We're so proud of how much we've grown. We're actually going to be expanding um, to new states and markets this year, which we're really excited about. And I'm sure you and I will talk about it a future time. But we really, I feel like, turned a corner because when I started Courier, we were getting the same both sides of treatment um, uh, and really unfair kind of false equivalency treatment that we see across all ho- a host of issues by mainstream media. Um, there is a very large network of, of pink slime fake local news sites started by um, uh, Brian Timpone on the right, who is uh, and and so the, a lot of journalists that had covered his company, Metric Media, were so excited, like frothing at the mouth to say, look, there's a left wing equivalent with Courier because we were local and because we were transparent about our values. There could not be anything more different between Metric Media and Courier News, but I had to defend um, Courier all of the time. And the key difference is, though there are more than we have time to talk about here, is that, one, we have real journalists um, who have worked in local and state and national media in our newsrooms. You can follow all of them on Twitter. They have faces, names, families, children in the public schools that they're reporting on. They live in the communities that they serve. We fact-check every single piece of content that we publish, and we publish over 900 original pieces of content a week across the network. We have incredible integrity and transparency. And I will say when we first started Courier, we did not have as much transparency about our funding model 
And we worked really quickly to rectify that because I felt like that that feedback was very valid. Um, and so we're fully transparent about our investors and our underwriting partners. And that's really important in terms of building trust. The other thing is we will never so hate or division um, the way that the right does. We don't exist to, to just push an ideological agenda the way so much of right wing media does. Um, we certainly get accused of that. But but any time I point anyone to actually look at the reporting and the content itself, their arguments very quickly fall apart. And so I really believe that over the past two years, we've really turned a corner where we've seen a lot less of that criticism. There's still a lot of people who don't like um, that I've started a, uh, you know, a very transparently mission-driven news organization. Um, but most of those people who, who, I, who I do respect, there's lots of people that that launched that attack at me that I don't from the right, but the ones that I do respect, they still tend to cling to this very old idea of, of objectivity and media and journalism, which is a beautiful vision. And yet it was flawed at the time we had it. And we, we certainly don't have it anymore in America. It's not how people choose their information. Unfortunately, they, they want to actually go to people that they trust, whether those are influencers on TikTok or YouTube or publications that they've that they've subscribed to for years and years, um, or things that just share their values. And I don't think that's necessarily the worst thing. We have had that in other countries as long as we maintain transparency. I really don't believe objectivity is the gold standard because I don't really believe it ever existed. So with Courier, I kind of think we're a little ahead of the curve for media in America in just being very honest. And, and, you know, we also subscribe to this really cool framework that um, Jay Rosen, a professor of journalism at NYU, which is where I went to journalism school, has, um, has touted and advocated for, which is instead of a voice from nowhere, which is this idea of objectivity where any journalist can have no opinion, they shouldn't even vote necessarily um, in, their, in their personal lives in order to be unbiased, it's actually about a view from somewhere, where you be really honest about who you are and where you're coming from and what your values are and the fact that you have children or, you know, you're a woman who's, who has a woman as a spouse and you have children and, you know, or you have been through this specific type of experience or trauma or upbringing because that is more honest and that is going to inform how you report on things. And it's also going to make you much more trustworthy and relatable to people and, and let them decide if they like that and they want to consume that reporting or not. And so that's, that's yeah. really sort of the value that we hold at Courier. Well, and it, um, to your point, when I first um, was running the Sun-Times, I had a discussion with an editor where I said something along the same lines that you've said, that it's important for people to know where you're coming from, and that's okay. And the editor said, no, we're objective. And I took um, a different newspaper and that paper and put them side by side in a story about a fire. You know, like, talk about non-political, something burned down. Um, and both stories began with the story of the fire. And, but by the second paragraph, one was talking about the families that had been displaced. The other was talking about property damage and the money that it cost. And right. Oh, immediately there was a difference on something that the editor said, well, this is exactly the same. Just the facts. They're not. It all depends on where you're coming from. And it's so important that you acknowledge your values so that people trust where you're coming from. 
that's right. And that you're honest, right? I mean, this is what we're seeing with the, the Fox News uh, case. Um, Dominion has uh, sued Fox News over, and we're seeing with the testimony and all the materials that are coming out, like, they were explicitly lying, and they knew they okay, were lying. Okay, well, I didn't want to bring up Fox here, but since you did, I have to ask you, because, you know, people want to see some fake equivalency between you and Fox. Like, have you ever said to your reporters, I know it's a lie, but you know what? Our revenue model demands that you keep lying. Have you ever said that? Absolutely not. <laughs> we would ne- not only would I never defend a lie, we would never put a lie out there, ever. Right. And that, I mean, that's, that's why we exist is because we are up against people that have no floor. They have no integrity. And they are unapologetically saying it, right? Listen to people when they say who they are. This is all out there now. They're not hiding it. It's the same thing when it comes to their extremism on the right, when it comes to governors and lawmakers in this country. They're not even hiding their ball anymore. Um, they're being no, out there, really and that's are. why we have got to punch back, and we have to punch back through our values, and that is how I believe that we will win. So uh, you have so many challenges, right? Um in Florida, Ron DeSantis wants anybody who has a blog and talks about the state to register. I don't know if that impacts you. I, I, I don't just don't know if he thinks it does or doesn't. But if he passes a law that says you guys have to register and somehow be um, the next step, I suppose, once you're registered is to be watched and to be um, intimidated. Um, is this I mean, do you guys talk about that? Is that something that you think about? the the uh, bullying yeah. environment that you're in? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we we have seen the right attack, what they describe as fake news media all the time. It started to mean nothing because it means everything to them. But what Ron DeSantis is doing on pretty much all fronts to me is incredibly dangerous and much farther than we even saw Trump take some of this stuff. Like, I, I personally, I have this debate all the time these days because it's very center um, front of mind for me. But I think he is the greatest threat. Um, uh, to this country and to democracy. And I am very, very concerned about him being the nominee in 2024 um, because he has put into, he has legalized a lot of these positions and he has taken them farther. So instead of just chastising or ignoring and not engaging with media he doesn't like, he has also propped up um, and only engages with media that has been built to serve him. It's called the Florida Standard in Florida. And he's really building the model and the infrastructure he wants to scale across this country and the agenda he wants to scale um, and see uh, implemented across this country when it comes to um, banning books, banning African-American history, banning gender studies in schools and public universities, when it comes to criminalizing uh, felons, uh, if they vote um, and other issues related to voting and election security. I mean, it's across the board terrible. When it comes to the media side, uh, this is fascism. This is fascism um, leading on a path to state-controlled media that he can decide what is media and what information reaches people and what doesn't. We saw this in Hungary. He is taking Orban's playbook um, almost word for word when it comes to um, the way he's approaching education and the media, and it's incredibly terrifying. Um, And it's something that we have to be really, really clear eyed about. Um, And we also have to have media that is willing to stand up for this and call it out for what it is 
and not play these games around both sides of them. Um, because, and I, and I sort of hope that how, how far, how much farther he is taking the attacks on media and journalism in Florida will wake journalists up to play a more aggressive role in accountability coverage of him and what he's doing and what he hopes to scale and what the right wing hopes to scale in this country. Yeah, I, um, I, I don't, I don't think his brand will make it past the state very much because, you know, the rest of us haven't had that kind of propaganda the way he's done it in Florida um, all the time. But I I don't think as important as what you journalists do is the the, um, the, the defense against this is not only journalism. And this is part of why I like your model so much. It's what do the consumers of facts do with those facts? So, I mean, you have a model where if somebody knows what Ron DeSantis is doing, it's not too difficult for them to share that with their family and their friends and everybody else. It takes advantage of some of the features of social media that the right has used to do so much corruption to our system. You're um, almost vaccinating it um, with facts, which I think goes a long way to protecting us. That's right. That's the hope. And and something else that I think gets lost in other media organizations and their coverage is that um, because of how saturated our information environment and diet is every day, based on what platforms you go on, you have to you have to reinforce and repeat things. You have to cover things continuously. We talk a lot about drum beats at Courier. Um, and it's because people hear lies three times and it becomes the truth to them. They need to hear the truth as often and ideally more than they're hearing the lies and disinformation. And that's a different approach to content. It's a different approach to publishing than a lot of news organizations, right? They publish one Vanguard article or investigation or piece. And then, you know, they hope that like that reporter gets on cable news and radio programs and NPR and all of this stuff to keep the story going and that others start picking up pieces. But you have to actually really, really, really get messaging in front of people many times, especially when there's dangerous things happening. And, you know, we experienced this with Trump, too. When there is so much every day, it's very hard to keep up and do that. And so we think about that challenge a lot, too, with folks like DeSantis um, and what we're doing, our Iowa newsroom. Um, every day there is a new incredibly hateful, divisive and dangerous bill being proposed and very possibly turning into law. And some of them already have in the state of Iowa. And so you have to figure out a way to to really connect the dots for people and reinforce what's happening. So you don't run the risk of it just being too much that that people tune out to all of it. So it's, it's another. Yeah, I mean, that, they yeah. have. Right. It's the frog in the water, you know, That's and it right. just boils slowly and we boil. Right. And we just don't. It, it, there's so much nonsense and 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 um, noise and and really terrible things coming from the right. But it's impossible to keep track of all of them. It's impossible to focus on all of them. And that is a um, feature of what they're doing, not a flaw. Right. Because you point to one, the other one slips by or you point to four of them and Nobody can pay attention. So it's the patterns we have to talk about. And you can't talk about those one off like, oh, today the dog bit the journalist or the journalist bit the dog. 
That's right. And then you then you factor in the fact that, you know, local newsrooms have been gutted across this country and there's very little uh, local and state journalism. We, we feel like that's a really, really critical service that our newsrooms provide as well, is that we are covering this stuff every single day and hope that, you know, as it as as these issues become bigger, as we start to see them across all the states across the country that Republicans are leading in state houses, that we have created this library of factual reporting and coverage and accountability journalism that, you know, national reporters and journalists can also lean on and cite because they don't have the, the boots on the ground or the capacity to be looking at this stuff. And we take that role really seriously. And we've seen it. Uh, we've seen it play out in Iowa, especially a lot of national and international publications have picked up our journalism and it really does validate how critical it is that we are in these places um, and holding these folks accountable because without state and local journalism um, they get away with this stuff um, it just doesn't reach beyond um, the state house itself uh, never mind their own constituents and so we, we play a big role there that is absolutely true but even I mean um your, your model does more than provide journalism in places where there are deserts. Um, and here I'm thinking about Chicago. My city has great local journalism and lots of it, um, both legacy and new, lots of journalism. And yet we just got through a mayoral primary. We're going to be in a, in a runoff here. And everywhere I went, people were like, yeah, I don't know much about the candidates. Uh, you know, and it was not for lack of journalism. It is that the consumption, the, the fractured nature of journalism makes it much harder for um, for there to be connections on things like this. No, that's absolutely right. That kind of gets back to our model of, you know, what is the most important information that people need to be informed participants and voters? Um, and that comes down to, again, how it relates to them. And you know, some things that feel like lowbrow or too basic for a lot of political reporters for state and national publications is just who are the candidates? What do they stand for? Report cards that compare their positions on issues or their statements in their own words. A lot of our content is just social graphics and quote cards. If you go, I always tell people, if you want to see our journalism, don't go to our newsroom's websites. That is not reflective of the content that really reaches our audience. Go to their Instagram page, go to their TikTok channel, go to their Facebook page, because then you'll really see our model in practice, which is vertical videos, stories, reels, TikToks that break down complicated issues and races. It is... Um, it, it, carousel graphics on Instagram that very simply break down what's in a bill or what just happened around an event or, you know, a crisis in the state. And so it, the format is as important to us as the information um, that we're providing. And, and that's another thing that, you know, I have heard also a lot of news organizations really respect about our model, even if they don't love the fact that we are mission driven. I, I, want to say that there are no major consumer facing companies in America that don't practice these lessons that you've brought into journalism. They have to know their audience. They have to meet their audience's needs and they have to meet them where their audience wants them to be met. That's just, that's just the nature of um, getting through to people in a gigantic um, 
noisy country like ours. That's exactly right. And, and you know, the, the, to bring it back full circle, the real challenge that these news organizations have that aren't incentivizing them to figure this out is revenue. It's because they don't make money off of creating accessible content for social media that doesn't bring people back to their websites or have them sign up for their newsletters to be able to put more ads in front of them. And so you do it. That's a real challenge that I very much empathize with because you have to create creative and different revenue streams to not rely on, on, on those other strategies that have prevented news organizations from informing the greater public. And, you know, they all say that that's their mission, but when it comes down to practice, they're really only serving people willing to pay their paywalls or who are interested proactively in signing up for their information. Well, and on the information that goes to civic engagement, we have to be honest. Look, the August New York Times subsidizes its political coverage with puzzles and wire cutter. Of course. Wordle was <laughs> right? the artist they ever made, and I think it cost them only like less than a million bucks. Right. Yep. Nothing. I mean, so 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 we have to be we have to like acknowledge that what people are willing to pay for is not political news, never has been. Right? Even though Americans love their politics, that's just not what they're gonna put they, like reach into their pocket for. They may reach into their pocket to support candidates and causes, but not for the news part of it. That's got to be subsidized by something else. Now, always has been. That's right. And I do I do believe, I think this is a little bit controversial, but I do actually believe that we are entering um, a chapter in this country where we really need to do a lot of education about the fact that, that people who do have the means to contribute $5 a month or $10 a month to local journalism or journalism that they like, you know, beyond paywalls to subsidize it for people who aren't going to be able to afford it or pay, is a really important act of public service um, and civic and civic participation and engagement because there aren't that you know we're not we don't have time to get into the state of the media industry in America right now but it's very bleak um, you know you, all you have to do is kind of Google uh, journalism layoffs or media layoffs and you'll see that every major and small news and media organization in this country is announcing layoffs this year as so many other industries are and. It really is a crisis, and we have to find ways to make sure that people get good information in whatever ways they consume it. And I do think that is going to take uh, that is going to take the role of philanthropy and individuals to help support good journalism at every level. One of the things that may also contribute uh, is a change that I think we are beginning to see. For a long time, we nationalized everything. We just like bigger audience. It's, it's from a, from a corporate perspective. Look, the more eyeballs, the better. So let's just have national news. And then the, you know, the impact of Donald Trump made us all focus on Washington. Um, but now that we've seen the um, carnage that's happened to our democracy at the states, at the state level, while everybody was looking, well, at least while Democrats were looking at Washington, um, there's a sort of new focus locally. And I even think people are so tired of Washington. They just want to know, like, where do I go get a good meal and see a great movie in my neighborhood? Right. So I think there's a, a renewed local focus. Um, and I think that's healthy for the country. And I think it may, you know, as people ask those questions, they're going to need journalists to help them answer them. 
That's right. And and resources and different information. And I, I couldn't agree with you more, but I think it is healthy for the country because it's also we have to get back to a place of healthy discourse. I am concerned that the extreme right has gone very hyper local because they know that this is where uh, tr- trust is built or destroyed in a lot of communities. And we're seeing this with the attacks on schools. It's starting very local in school board meetings and committee um, and school board races and things of that nature. And it really is dividing communities. And I do believe that the majority of people actually just want, um, you know, want civility and, and, and want their kids to be decent humans and decent people in addition to getting the the good educations in their schools. And I really think that we have to be really, really mindful and careful, too, about about watching what the right is doing at the local level and when it comes to information, but also just when it comes to organizing, because I, I again, think that they are far and away ahead of the left um, at at trying to stoke fears and division at this hyper-local level because they know how valuable it is not just to their power building, but also to the polarization that is that is bolstering their ability to dismantle our institutions at the national level. Yeah, I'm, I mean, FDR said in, I think, 38, he, he said the, that, that democracies have to work day and night by peaceful means to better the lives of their citizens every day. And if they don't, it creates fertile ground for autocracy. Actually, said fascism it was a different era, but um, and, and the right knows this, and they they, right. they want to stop us from making that progress. Right, and that's where I really encourage people. Where you see people organizing, even if it feels like a small, loud minority, if they are organizing in your communities, look for the people like you. And if they are not, be one of those people, <laughs> because that's the other thing I worry about is that is that so many folks are like, oh, they're you know they're extreme, they're crazy, they sound crazy, but if they're really active and organized, they really already are having an impact, and we really need to be vigilant about fighting back and fighting for what we value in our communities and knowing that that is our role. No one else is going to come in from Washington to be able to, to protect our values. Um, and, and so I just, that's something I think about every single day is our people, you know, who are seeing this, understanding the real threat and, and, and understanding that they have a role to play too, to fight back. This is where I'm an optimist um, because, you know, Really, since Donald Trump was elected, I think a lot of people have stopped waiting for the refs to come in and, and you know, call foul and fix things. I mean, there's been such a really remarkable growth of, of organizations, journalists like you, but, but community-based organizations, civic organizations, political organizations on the left, and, and dozens of them. Um, Who's, who, who found on ramps for their fellow citizens to engage with each other in fighting back and in fighting not just against, but fighting for better schools and fighting for stronger communities. Um, and I've seen this in state after state, even in, in red states, there are pockets of this going on um, that are getting bigger. And I, it, I'm, I don't know. I think there's been a renewal in civic life because of this threat. 
Oh, I absolutely agree. And I, I really do believe that people value democracy a lot more than than, than a lot of pundits thought um, over the past few years and, and want to keep and protect it and in a way that is local all the way up to national. And I've, I've been inspired by that, too. And it, again, comes back to information, right? It comes back to, to staying engaged and informed. And uh, the more that we can help provide those services, I think the better, um, because it will empower more people to get engaged. Yeah, information and that other part of who you are values. That's right. And they they go together because they help you understand how to understand information. That's right. Well, so what's coming? What do you this? We are... um, you know, the wheels turning, <laughs> yet another set of elections coming. Um, but even before we get to those elections, there's just the uh, building a point of view in communities, right? I mean, the Republicans have done this for years. They don't wait for elections. They help people understand the world in a certain way, um, um, a very dark way. What are we doing what do you think is coming? What's the conversation going to be like in the next six months as we prepare for another round of elections? And I know there are elections along the way, like a really important one in Wisconsin. I get yeah. that. You're very focused on that. But I mean, this is where, you know, uh, a good friend and mentor of mine called us the other day. We're in spring training, um, which means so are they. Um, and I think this is the other thing that I, I really love about my job and the fact that I get to watch the incredible reporting and coverage come out of our newsrooms is, is because it, they, the right is really, um, you know, they are building and flexing their muscle on their extreme agenda um, at every level in our states, um, the, the states that they are running state houses and in the states where they are, uh, you know, fighting to make themselves relevant. And I think the culture wars that they are waging um, on our schools, on our teachers, on our students, on our children, on our parents. It's, um, this is not so dissimilar from what we saw in 2021 in Virginia. We're seeing it ramp up. We are, we're seeing them gain traction on really divisive issues that are really, really, really harmful um, to our country. And I, I really do believe that they are exporting a lot of these um, across the country to sort of build and prepare for 2024. And so, you know, our our newsrooms have a really uh, complicated and intense balancing act of a job to be covering this stuff every single day and holding these folks accountable and localizing these issues and making sure that we're telling the stories of the people that are impacted while also telling the good that government is doing in their communities. The implementation mm-hmm. of all of the historic achievements of this administration and Washington Democrats and a few Republicans on the infrastructure bill, these programs and projects and investments are now coming into fruition in the communities where we are. And it's really exciting. And again, is just so desperately in need of, of content and information and storytelling and reporting that makes sense to people that connects the dots to the, to the bridge that they drive over every day or the jobs that are being created that their kids or, or they can benefit from and making sure that it isn't just about, you know, big spending projects in your state or things of that nature, but it really comes down to the dollars, how they are being spent and how that impacts you. 
And so doing both of those things is really, really important. You know, I, I think the, I think that the media is the GOP primary has been fairly slow, in my opinion, to start. I think uh, Republicans don't really want it to start. Um, I, I do think we will start to see that pick up. I think both Trump and DeSantis are going to be in Iowa in the next week from the first voting states in the country for their primary. And so, you know, being vigilant about making sure that there's coverage there while also not taking our eye off the ball of what Republicans are doing in state house legislative sessions because they really are, like I said, flexing their muscles on the agenda that they want to implement across the country. Um, and certainly uh, when it comes to voting rights and access, the attacks on those and the, uh, the policies to be able to um, limit voting and access to voting is really, really important, um, as well as what's happening in the courts and especially the Supreme Court. We are going to see really we are going to see some really serious decisions come down in June that are going to have wide scale implications. And as we know from the reversal of Roe last year with Dobbs, like people are more in tune to how radical and extreme um, the makeup of the Supreme Court is. And so I think those are other organizing moments and opportunities for us. Tara, that's got to be the last word. Tara, the time is just whipped by as I knew it would. Um, And I don't even think we've scratched the surface (laughs) on a lot of things. I'm very grateful for your work and your time. And I will reach out to you to catch up offline soon. Right back at you. Thank you so much, Edwin. It's always a pleasure. Great to have you. All right, everybody, we are going to take a break from the news. And that was Tara McGowan, the fabulous uh, founder and head of uh, Courier Newsrooms. We have a terrific uh, conversation with Simon Rosenberg coming right after the news. You don't want to miss it. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath on WCPT 820. All right, everybody. I, I told you at the top of the show, like Marvel Comics has nothing on us. This is a show that's filled with superheroes. And Simon Rosenberg is certainly one of them, a political strategist, an entrepreneur, a writer. Um, he's proven to have a great eye for talent and the ability to nurture and train a generation of folks who've gone on to play important roles in campaigns, in government, in many organizations that help shape public dialogue. He founded Indiana Progressive Think Tank that has had an outsized impact for the last few years. And recently he announced he's winding that down. Most importantly, in a world of certainties and sound bites, this is a man who is not afraid to think. Simon, welcome. Edwin, thank you so much. I really appreciate that introduction. Uh, no, I've admired your work for many years. We actually uh, both worked on the Clinton campaign in 91, but I don't think our paths uh, crossed. And I'm really pleased to meet you now. Yes, thank you so much. And thanks for what you do. Well, look, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about the difference and the intersection between governing and politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I, you know, today's GOP doesn't really think about governing. They think about politics. It's, you have some constraints when you also try and do the hard work of governing. But you've spent decades in that in that intersection between the two. Yeah. And I think understanding that um, intersection and understanding how they work together has been part of expanding the democratic base over the years. And I wonder what you think about that. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point you're making. Um, you know, it, it, politics, in, and you're right about what's happened to the Republican Party. I mean, essentially, it's all performative politics now. It isn't really about governing. I mean, I, I often say that the way to think about the Republicans now is that they're basing their politics on this false story that they're telling every day about the Democrats, that we're radical left, we're woke, we're communist, socialist, whatever the attack of the day is. They even started calling it satanic a few weeks ago. And that they have to maintain this fiction that we are this evil, dangerous group of people. Therefore, the right is then justified in doing whatever they can, using whatever tools they have to make sure that we don't move our politics forward. And that false narrative and that false story that they tell essentially has become their entire politics. They don't really do much else other than continuing to try to, it's like a thing they've built that is falling down every day that they have to rebuild it and to keep it going, to keep this sort of base, this incredibly false and wrong story they're telling the American people about who we are as a country and, and who we are as Democrats. And so I do think that Democrats and Joe Biden you know, as you know, he's sort of a workhorse, not a show horse, right? He puts his head down every day and does the work. He had an incredibly productive first two years as president. The country's clearly far better off today because of him. And and it's we have to do both, though. We've got to be able to govern well and tell our story effectively if we want to be successful. And I think we have work to do in the next year and a half about telling our story. Yeah, I struggle every week on this show with how to talk about the moment we're in, how to be true to the values I hold and the determination to stick with facts, um, to um, um, uh, to think and not just to opine. Um, <laughs> and I, I struggle with how to do this against sort of oncoming, I don't know what to call it, medieval race-based cultist mindset that's coming at us. Uh, you, you, I think you cited that struggle as one of the reasons why you're stepping back from Indiana and moving on to a new yeah. direction. Yeah, I mean, if people get a chance to read the Atlantic, Ron Brownstein's interview with me in the Atlantic, it was really a wonderful interview. I've known Ron Edlin since you know 1992. We've we've been friends for a long time. We've had many conversations over the years about American politics, and he really, good piece. I think we we co- yeah, it's a good piece, and we cover a lot of ground and. Yeah, look, the reason I'm I'm winding down this organization that I began in 1996 is because NDN was built in a completely different political era, and it was built to achieve certain things that had been either largely achieved or time has moved on, and, and we need to now do things differently. We have new challenges ahead of us, and to me, there are sort of three basic sets of things that make this coming political age different from the age that we just you know, went through as a country and as Democrats. And one is that the governing challenges we have now are different. Uh, you know, we really have to, we have to make sure the planet doesn't warm. We have to make sure that democracy prevails here and abroad. And I think these become overarching priorities for us in a way that they weren't 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Second is it's the thing we're talking about, which is the the information ecosystem that we're living in is changing so much. I think the social media age was bad for the United States, was bad for the world. I think it's been, you know, bad for young Americans. It's just been a bad experience for, for us. We are moving, I think, into a post-social media age. Democrats have to acknowledge and recognize these changes that are happening in the way that we communicate and build a new politics around this. I think that 
The other piece of that is that we have to also acknowledge the information superiority of the right. The Republicans are just much louder than we are, and they're not better than we are, but they're louder. And we have to get louder. As uh, And I know you had Tara McGowan on earlier, somebody who I've been working with quite a bit, who's, I think, one of the most important young leaders and in, in building institutions that are going to help us get louder. And then the third piece is I think we still, domestically, our politics is changing. MAGA has changed everything, right? The 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 we're not in a Republican Democratic debate anymore. We're we're in we're up against extremists who are willing to lie, cheat, and steal to gain power. It's a serious matter, and and I think that we have to organize our politics differently than we did before. So, my organization that I built all those years ago just wasn't suited to do these things, and so. I'm going to reorganize my work over the next few months, and, and I'm going to be launching a Substack um, this week, which is, if you don't know about it, it's a place where writers and thinkers go. It's going to be my primary home. NDN's been my primary home for 27 years. This new Substack I have is going to be my primary home, and so everyone can join me there if you can. What's it going to be called? And I think I don't know yet, and, I'm, and it's going to be it's launching Tuesday. You can If you follow me on Twitter, at Simon WDC, but also if you if you just search Simon Rosenberg, it will come up. And um, and we're still working out all the final details. And I don't want to I don't want to wink and nod one way or the other. We've got uh, it's down to two names, and we'll see on Tuesday. I'm working on that this weekend. But anyway, so the I, line is, look, I think we're I think we're going through big changes, and I'm going to be organizing myself to sort of do these to engage in these battles in a different way than I was before. They're so important. By the way, I write on Substack too, called "It's the Democracy Stupid." Um, but yeah, <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, um, it, it, the, the things that you mentioned—they're so important. They argue. Mm, I, I, we just passed a, a, you know, the first round of a mayoral election in Chicago, and yeah. now there are two candidates, and they are the most edgy, the most left, and the most right are the two that that survived to where we are. And I'm not going to make any friends in Chicago by telling my fellow Democrats um, that this is not the battle between good and evil, that there actually is you know, one in the country. And it isn't this. Um, and that, yeah. that the things that you're talking about, saving the democracy, paying attention to the, the things we need to do on climate change. And they're related because of the corruption of money in our democracy. And so much of it is fossil fuel based. Um, th- that we really have to stay focused on the most important issues for the next few years and not allow ourselves to be dragged into our usual small fights. It's not just small fights, everyone. I think, I think that, first of all, yes. I mean, part of what my role has been for a long time is to say, hey, there are these things that we have to do. There are a lot of things we can do, but there are a few things that we have to do. And if we're going to be successful, the country is going to be successful. And to stay focused on the things that matter most. It doesn't mean that there are a lot of other things that don't matter, but there are things that matter more, right? I, I think it's we can say that, and I think the things I've laid out are the things that if we don't get these things right, then a lot of the other things that we care about won't matter very much, right? And 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 the second thing, though, you talk about sort of the attitude of Democrats and sort of who we are, and I think something really important happened in 2021 and 2022 where – we got down on ourselves. We got down on Biden. We got pessimistic as a part, you know, as a family, we were fighting with each other and we just don't have the luxury to do that. Right. I mean, I, I think one of the learnings that I have, and you're in the media business is that a lot of what MAGA does 
is to put negative sentiment into our discourse. They want us to feel bad about our leaders, our country, our democracy, each other, our institutions, everything. They want us to feel bad about it. And I think that part of the way we're going to defeat MAGA is that we have to become more conscious about putting positive sentiment into the discourse, telling the good stories about the greatness of this country and the great things that we still can do to not allow their negative sentiment and their talking down America to dominate our discourse. We, if they talk it down, we got to talk it up, right? We need to spend more time putting positive sentiment into our discourse. And we can't be sort of perpetually disappointed, perpetually angry and frustrated that the perfect thing that we all wanted didn't happen. It's just not the nature of our, our business, right? And I think we got too caught up a little bit in the last couple of years about the perfect and not the good. And we have to be careful to not allow that to happen again because that's when they win, right? When we get down on ourselves and lose faith in ourselves and lose faith in our country is when they're going to defeat us. And if we lose at this point, right, losing means that, you know, we may not have the same democracy that we all want to have. And, and, and so the stakes in these things that we're talking about are very high. And and I just want to say that I am very grateful to be a Democrat. I'm very grateful to be living here in the United States. We are the greatest country in the world. We're the best political party America's ever produced. Uh, there's a lot we should be celebrating, and we have to get more comfortable about doing that as Democrats, I think, if we're going to be more successful than we are now. Yeah, the, the fight, um, you know, in, in the, the most remarkable Congress since the 1960s, for sure, the 117th Congress, they got such stuff done. But for a year, there was a very public fight about what that would be, and it was damaging, really damaging to us. And it was self-indulgent to some degree as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think it, it, it is – we can, we can debate, we can disagree without being disagreeable. We can't fight, right? Like, we have to debate. We have to argue. We have to – it can't become fighting, right? Because the, when the left, the center left splits is when far right parties are successful. And we know this from history. We know this from what's happening around the world right now. Yeah. You know, yep. I mean, the, the, the new government in Italy only got 25% of the vote in, in yep. general, or I think it was 25%. So we've got to stick together as hard as that is sometimes. Is that, well, I'm you know, we have optimistic. to be very conscious about sticking together. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm optimistic about this. And I think you you are part of, of why. I mean, I just think about what happened since Donald Trump was elected, since that enormous women's march all over the country. We have we've seen wonderful organizations, whether it's Tara McGowan's Courier Newsroom or Demcast, you know, to get uh, ideas out or swing left. I mean, there there are dozens and dozens of organizations and revitalized Democratic Party organizations around the country that have given such on-ramps to Americans to get back involved in civic life. And when they get back involved, it turns out they get involved in their local communities because that's where this takes place. And it's a rebuilding of the fabric of our of our civic life that I see going on precisely because of the MAGA threat that makes me an optimist. Well, listen, I think this is really important about what you're saying, and I don't think there's nearly enough attention to it being given to it, which is that the during the combination of Hillary's loss and Trump's rise and the growth of MAGA and then COVID happening, there's been a new a new era of activism in the Democratic Party. Our campaigns are raising 
three, four, five times more money than they were raising, you know, 10 years ago are the number, you know, people, as you know, I'm sure you have friends, right? You can live in Illinois and still text and make phone calls into Michigan and Wisconsin into battleground states. Everybody I know. Everybody you know is doing it, right? This this has become a phenomenon. And what we've had is that we now have the most powerful muscular grassroots that I think we've ever had since I've been in this business in 30 years doing this. Millions of people are getting up every day, you know, thinking of themselves as activists. They're attending Zooms with, you know, I do all these Zooms with groups all over the country. Hundreds of people come. You can now make dinner and participate in a Zoom with a senator or a congressman. Zoom has been a very powerful thing because it's allowed these communities to grow. I mean, some of these were book groups that then just got 20 of their friends and they got 20 of their friends and they've grown into these things with thousands of people who are raising. I spoke to a group in Massachusetts that's raised $15 million for, in over the last three elections for Democratic candidates. Hundreds of people, they interview candidates, they're very deliberate about what they do. This kind of very Tuckvillian kind of, uh, you know, local bottom-up organizations that have happened, which have been enabled by Democrats and Swing Left and Indivisible, has really made us strong and muscular and powerful. And it's something that I just don't think is getting nearly enough attention. And it's one of the reasons we did so well in the election, right, is that, you know, where we were able to, in the blue state, in the battleground states where we ran these big campaigns because of all the passion of our proud patriots giving all this money, we had people texting in, right, from Illinois, right, yep, to, yep. you know, into the battleground, right, writing their postcards. You know, we actually did better in 2022 in most of the major battleground states than we did in 2020. That's an incredible achievement. But the lesson, the admonition is where we didn't have these big campaigns, you know, we fell back. And it's why New York and California, a lot of New York, California, Texas and Florida and Part of what I'm talking about now is, is that we not only have to celebrate and acknowledge and understand how important it is to have these big campaigns, but we need to now become information warriors. We need to be involved in the daily debate every day, get louder as a family, because they still are louder than we are. And and yep. I think we're going to sort of cut into their loudness in two ways, right? One is through organizations like Terra's. Um, and, you know, Resolute Square and Midas Touch and you and, and, you know, for what you're doing, we have, you know, people who are out there institutionally moving us forward. But I think private citizens can do more, too. I mean, I'd like to think of the war room, you know, back when we met all those mm-hmm. years ago. I'd like to think of the war room, not as 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bulls, but four million people getting up every day, you know, pushing messages through their networks, being networked and amplified and being loud together. And I think it's something we can all do uh, in our daily lives. You want to be loud. You don't want to be annoying, right? Don't want to be annoying, but we can all be loud. And I think together, you know, we can cut into some of those advantages that Republicans have. That's a really important point. And it goes to, in the end, this sense that we can't wait for the refs. We have to do it ourselves. you know? Um, People have said, I see something going on. It's not right. Somebody's going to come and tell them they're wrong and it'll be okay. And nobody's going to come and tell them they're wrong. We have to do it ourselves. That's what a democracy is. And and I think people are waking up to that. And I, I can't wait to see what you do on Substack. It, it will be part of that huge effort to give everybody the information they need to share, to make part of their networks, to, as you say, be loud. 
Yeah, listen, I think we're going to, I think with the, with the ending of what Twitter was, whatever Twitter becomes, um, you know, we're in a period where there's got to be incredible experimentation uh, in the way that we communicate and the way that we tell our story. I think the, the media around us is changing. I mean, groups like Midas Touch, you know, Midas Touch now, which is a group that was just founded a few years ago, three brothers in Los Angeles, they're now getting as many uh, views on the Internet every day as MSNBC and CNN. I mean, they've become a, a major media property in just a few years. And, yep. and, and I think, again, I think the combination of Zoom, which has moved a lot of our politics to video, you know, into, into audio and video, right? We've seen a huge increase in podcasts. We're, we have so much, the way that we all are getting our information and talking to each other is changing. And I think we all have to recognize that Twitter, you know, we, it's going to be very difficult for the Democratic family to stay on Twitter much longer um, because of what Elon's doing. And there's an urgency to really try to, to accelerate the, the development of these other options for us um, to give us and to learn how to use these things, which is one of the reasons I'm diving into this. Was, you know, I've created a YouTube channel just a few months ago. I'm now producing regular mm-hmm. video content. I'm now going to go on Substack. I, I, working for a 501c4 organization was very limiting in terms of what I could talk about and what I could do. I needed to be able to to be able to operate differently. And that's what I'm doing now with my own career. So I'm fascinated. I can't wait to see this next step of yours. I want to go back to an old uh, part of your life, an older part of the life and talk about just why it's so important that you've done what you've done. You know, for a year leading up to the midterms, Tom Bonnier came on my show with some regularity, and we would talk about the data and what it means. And I would wonder whether the upcoming election would differ from every other, because it wasn't just a referendum on the incumbent, but it seemed like a referendum on the revanchist right. And then Dobbs happened, right? And Tom often came on and talked about your work, um, you know, and and uh, tried to tell everybody that the red wave was BS, but I mean, this is why I raise it, because it, even though it was BS and you guys pointed that out, Democrats still took it seriously enough to move resources to places they didn't need to move them. And it may have cost us, oh, I don't know, the worst senator in the United States, Ron Johnson. Right. I think um, you, and I, you and I, you and I agree that Ron Johnson is the worst senator in the United States. So I appreciate that even being voiced today. <laughs> Listen, I, I think the red wave, the story of the red wave, and Tom and I, you know, uh, you know, were partners in in this effort uh, last year. Was really a kind of an amazing thing that happened. I mean, as, just as you pointed out, as thinking people, um, you know, essentially the entire national media got the election wrong, and they didn't just get it wrong. The the red wave was the opposite of what happened in the election. It wasn't just a miss. Just the red wave meant high Republican intensity and low Democratic intensity. And, and frankly, what happened was sort of the opposite of that, right? Which yep. is that we, we outperformed expectations and they underperformed expectations. So this wasn't a small thing that happened. Uh, you know, it was a big thing that happened. And it gets to this, this part of the story that I'm trying to tell that I do think we're going through a change in the way that our, the way that information moves, the way that we communicate with each other. I don't exactly know how this all is going to go. I don't, I, you know, we all, I feel like we're in a period of transition, but the legacy media, as it's called, you know, really had their worst election performance ever. 
2022. And there's been virtually no self-reflection about it. There's been no discussion about, well, what did we learn? You know, how do we make sure we don't make those mistakes? Again, the New York Times, to their credit, you know, did do this big investigative piece about the red wave and what happened to the red wave, because I think they felt they'd been burned in their, some of their own reporting, you know, by Republicans who had, you know, told them, you know, falsehoods. I mean, one of the things I kept telling reporters during this battle with the red wave was that, you know, they just spent the last two years lying about the last election. Why don't you think they could be lying about this one? Right. And and that the notion that you why are you taking anything they're telling you at face value? Right. And this isn't the same Republican Party that you were covering 20 years ago. And so the Republicans manufactured through through creating these false polls, this perception that the election was moving towards them. Tom and I were challenging that data, um, you know, with our own with publicly available data, right, saying that we weren't seeing this in the data that we had. And we stuck to our guns and said we thought it was going to be a close competitive election. What was, I think, disappointing and should be disappointing to all of your listeners is that prominent people that you watch on TV all the time, that we all trust to give us information about American politics, you know, looked at what we were doing and said we were wrong. I mean, Tom and I were attacked by um, by. Nate Silver, we were called, uh, I was called a conspiracy theorist by a prominent MSNBC commentator. I was, uh, the Cook Report said I was putting out astrology, not analysis. And and so they meet the group, the media group, when I sort of threw it in everybody's face 10 days before the election and said, what are you guys doing? You're falling for this Republican BS. They attacked us. And I remember never yep. really. Yeah. And, and it's just it was incredibly disappointing to me. And, and I, you know, I went on Joy Reid's show and I called them. I called out the commentariat, as I call it. And and so but there's been no reflection on this. And, and, and it gets to this basic point that the Republicans capacity to move false arguments into the daily discourse is a major thing in our. Pol- it's a major um, challenge that we have in our country. Because if you're a media and you see four other people saying red wave, red wave, red wave, then you just jump on red wave, red wave. And that was all a manufactured false story in the way that's been no, thinking is hard. False. Yeah. Thinking, thinking is hard. hard. And yeah. yeah. And they've become, uh, you know, they have become unmoored from any kind of moral obligation to be involved in a politics that makes things better. And so the level of manipulation, the level, level of gamesmanship, the level of BS has escalated. And, and this is why we have to get much more serious. That's why I'm on the show today, right? Yeah. We have to get much more serious about countering the information superiority that the Republicans have. We will not be where we want to be as a national party and as a move, ideological movement unless we get louder in the in the coming years. Oh, as a democracy, if we get louder. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, the democracy will go. And, and there are consequences to these lies. And I don't, you know, it isn't just that you got treated badly. Um, and I'm, I mean, I, I'm sorry that happened. It's terrible that you got treated badly. But in fact, Democrats <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. moved resources to California and other places where they didn't need to move them. And we lost Wisconsin. Right. I mean, there are actual consequences to that lie. That had that, yeah. that made a difference in our electoral politics. There's so, no, there's we, no question. The DCCC believes that we lost the House because of this. They because what happened yeah. was that there were national donors that they were counting on to put money in at, at the end of the election, who passed and put money in other places, 
and yep, we only got lost spooked. the House by by five seats, you know, a few thousand votes in five seats. Yeah. And, and so I think it really was consequential. There's no question about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. So saving democracy, big concern. We've spent almost all our time about that. Do you want to, in, in, you know, the minute you have left, talk about your thinking about climate change? Well, I, let me just close with this, if we got a minute. I, I want to just come back to this idea that we have more power than we understand, that we have more agency than we're led to believe, that all of you who are listening today are acting like big citizens for even listening to this show. And But I need you to not only do the texting and the phone calls and the money that you're raising, we need to become information warriors together. We need to get louder. This is a huge, urgent priority. And for all of us, and Edwin, that's what you're doing with this show, right? Like you're just in doing it in, in the real world. Yep. And, yep. and stay and stay connected and spread. I try to release a lot of what I release in, my, in old NDN and now my new world is I try to provide daily information that people can use to be you know, better at making arguments for advancing our politics. And so develop resources, pick an issue, become expert in it, right? Engage in the discourse. It really matters. We can do this, but you can't score unless you shoot, right? Like we're only going to do it if we try and we have to stop saying, well, why isn't the DNC doing it? And why isn't Biden doing it? What are you doing, right? What are we doing? And I think we have more power than we understand. It's part of what you were getting at with these grassroots groups. Part of why I'm doing what I'm doing is I've been so inspired by the citizen activism that I've seen, the passion, the patriotism yeah, of the country that I've come across. And I feel obligated to continue to work with these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that I've been working with to make sure because we got another election ahead of us and we've got to win that one the way that you know we've done really well in the last three. But we got another one we have to do just as well at in 2024. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Simon. I'm. So appreciative of this time together. I hope we can do it again. And I hope once your sub stack is launched, we can devote some time to it here and, and, okay. and make these connections even bigger. Thank you. Really appreciate okay. it. Okay. Edwin, thank you. Have a great weekend. Take care. Yep. You too. All right, everybody. That was Simon Rosenberg. Um, remarkable uh, among the superheroes that are on today. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, this um, unique position of Secretary of State and its role in preserving, protecting our democracy by, by making sure our elections are free and fair and open. Um, this doesn't happen by accident. And Kim Rogers, who is the executive director of Dems of State, is going to join us after this break. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. All right. Welcome back. The bar is high after those first two guests because they were brilliant and doing great work. But you know what? Kim Rogers is going to be able to hop right over it. She is the first, I think, executive director of Dems of State. It's an organization meant to help elect Democratic secretaries of state, uh, state around the country to 
to defend the democracy where it's under attack and to strengthen it where it can be strengthened. Look, we used to be sleepy about this uh, role of, of, of secretaries of state. You know, maybe it was a lot of jobs. So we thought about it as patronage in some places, but it's not. It is the integrity of our democracy. And it's a position that GOP continues to subvert in its effort to weaken the institutions of our democracy. Kim, welcome. Edwin, thank you so much for having me on today. So um, I I think Democrats belatedly, Democratic voters belatedly, um, have discovered that we're a federal system with immense power in the states. And the GOP has known this for a while, and that uh, very nearly destroyed us. But you showed up and um, talk about Dems of State. Talk about uh, what a difference you've already made in fundraising this past cycle and how you're helping to shore up this enormously important position from the attacks it's under. Well, again, thank you for for having me on. You know, the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State, or as I'll call it, DAS for shorthand, uh, you know, it's pretty straightforward. We are the sole organization committed to electing and protecting these Democratic Secretaries of State. And, you know, the Secretary of State has not always been necessarily on the forefront. This has been a little bit more of a sleepy administrative position that focused on elections. And then, you know, in 2020, these folks were thrust into the spotlight. In the midst of a pandemic, the White House spreading this information, our Democratic secretaries stood up, ensured voting was safe, secure and accessible. It ranged from sending vote by mail applications to every registered voter in Michigan, increasing drop boxes, early vote centers in states like Colorado, even working through some back end uh, automatic voter registration in Arizona. The secretaries used the executive power to ensure Americans had access to the ballot, even in places with Republican legislatures. And because of that, uh, they got a lot of attention. People understood the power of these offices. And you saw direct attacks coming from the former president, naming these secretaries by name. And those lies continue to persist today, which is why you saw the attack on our Capitol on January 6th and why our folks are still being threatened um, to this day based on lies around 2020. Yeah, Kim, I mean, I guess, you know, for most of my life, Americans know how to run elections and we run free, fair elections and we're great at it. And, you know, in the last 20 years, really, we've we've made it easier to for people to participate in free and fair elections by making it easier to register to vote, by expanding hours or days so that you can vote. All these things have mattered. So we really didn't think about um uh, secretaries of state, except when we've said, like, I need a driver's license and how come I have to wait in line for that? So it became, <laughs> we focused on the thing that was like our need. We did, we took for granted the most important role until that was the one that was attacked. And then all of a sudden we woke up and said, Oh my gosh, forget the driver's license. Our whole democracy is on fire. And these are the, this is the fire brigade trying to protect us. And, and so I, you know, 
I mean, Jocelyn Benson came on the show and talked about mm -hmm. what she had to do in Michigan um, and others have, you know, what happened in Arizona. Now she's governor in Arizona in part because of the work that happened down there. You've got a collection of secretaries of state, the Democratic secretaries of state, who have been fabulous patriots, fabulous in protecting the democracy. Yeah, and I mean, you, you said it exactly right, Edwin. Our elections are fair. They are secure. These folks have been administering elections. There are built-in checks and balances that protect our democracy. It's only these lies and conspiracy theories and attacks on our democracy that are serving to undermine it. And that's the whole point, right? You have this group of extreme election denier Republicans who want to pick and choose winners. And in order to do that, they have to disempower voters. They have to make people believe that the system doesn't work. So they can manipulate it for a partisan political gain. And that is not what this office is about. These folks call balls and strikes. They count the votes. And, you know, we saw that in, in 2020. We had an amazing group of folks who just named a bunch that were elected in 2018. Benson, Hobbs, Griswold, Simon, who, who did the work in these states that were really close in 2020 that have put up with the attacks since then. And as we went into the 22 election in the aftermath of, of 2020, we knew that if we wanted to preserve safe and secure elections, free elections in our country, we had to win these races in critical battleground states in order to preserve the presidential race in this country. Because like you said, these elections are held on a state-by-state -state basis. And so when it comes to the fight for democracy that our country is under right now, secretaries of state are really the last line of defense. Well, I'm thinking of Pennsylvania, for example, in this last cycle. The choice was so clear. I mean, across the board, in, in Pennsylvania, in the, in the governor's race with Josh Shapiro and Mastriano, mm -hmm. you mentioned Secretary Benson. You know, she was running against Christina Caramo, a woman who oh. still has not conceded that she lost by more than 14 points in the Secretary of State. And I think now is the head of the Republican Party in Michigan. You're exactly right. They are now in <laughs> She was rewarded for her dishonesty. As a platform. <laughs> it's now a Republican platform. If you're an election denier, you can run your state party. That's how little they care about voters. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you, um, this organization has done something that really hasn't, we haven't seen before. It's, it's focused Americans on this job. So it's raised money. It's, it's really built the political mechanism for defending secretaries of state and maybe even expanding democratic secretaries of state. Talk about the politics and the fundraising. Yeah. Well, you know, in 2020, with such an inflection point on our democracy, there was historically, again, these haven't been sexy offices. They haven't been in the spotlight. But with democracy under attack, these races became more important than ever. And so we built out a full-time staff and a dedicated fundraising operation so we could invest in these races. And, you know, you've mentioned some of our candidates. Like, the candidates matter, but 
but candidates also need support. They need the training. They need the resources. They need to make sure that they have the tools necessary to win. And we knew that the right was going to throw everything that they could in this. In 2018, when Donald Trump was an incumbent president, he didn't make an endorsement in any secretary of state race. But in 2022, knowing what the map looks like, knowing the power that sit in these races, and after recruiting folks to run who had pledged their loyalty to him, he endorsed in races like Michigan, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia. He, he went as far as to say, I think that the exact quote was, sometimes the vote counter is more important than the vote. And that he did say that. The, yep. He did say that. Um, and we not in a democracy, so, by the way, that's certainly not the case in a democracy. But his his twisted view, it's not what he sees. I don't think that he's he's an advocate for democracy these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so we had to respond in kind. And so we spent a lot of time recentering the conversation about voting rights, redirecting it to the states. When folks were talking about the federal bills, we wanted to make sure that the folks who were administering elections in the states, these secretaries of state, were part of the conversation. And and so we spent a lot of time in 2021 talking to the media, explaining the mechanics of how our elections are run, what the role of this is, uh, the secretary is. Again, those bipartisan checks and balances that already exist at every level of our process. And we raised money to protect our democracy. Frankly, voters and donors at every level stepped up because this is a country built on the power of the vote, built on representation. And when you put the, the stakes that we were up against out there, people responded in kind. Everything from our grassroots donor program to our high dollar individual program and all of our allies across the board understood that democracy and that fundamental right to vote was tied to every single other fundamental right. And so when we saw the Dobbs decision and the rollback on Roe v. Wade, our entire country noticed that something that we had assumed was a right, a, a constitutional protected right could be stripped away that made the fear of losing our right to vote that much more real. And I think voters responded in kind. It was one other thing. The the mechanism that protects voting, the the, the hard work that's done to run free and fair elections is the work of a piece of our government. And and right now we have one party that actually focuses on doing the governing and another one that's abandoned it for a performative politics only, right? They don't, they don't do any governing anymore. So, so you had the double challenge really of n- not only fighting a political battle against folks who, that, who are expert at it because it's all they do, but also delivering on governing, delivering up against, um, uh, tactics of intimidation, um, uh, tactics of, of, of uh, verbal threats, tactics of defunding in some places. Um, 
to deliver free and fair elections. And you did so well that across the country, even Republican election deniers in the last cycle conceded that they lost. Almost all of them. I mean, the Carrie Lakes of the world, you know, drowning in her vodka martini in some bar right now, (laughs) maybe the only one who hasn't. Right. But mostly people have um, Republicans who are election deniers could not deny that you ran a free and fair election. And to their credit, they said, you know what? I lost. I'm going back to New Jersey. Well, I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that we continually pointed out in our in our race. And I think that's why you saw such success in the secretary races. Candidates matter. And not only was 2022 a good year for democracy and our electoral system is it told us that experience matters, that Americans are looking for that contrast of they're looking for competence and confidence and we were running against chaos. Right. And right. And in a lot of our states, like if your platform is running on that voter shouldn't decide elections, it's pretty hard for voters to get behind. Them. I think voters well, we, you, fundamentally care about democracy and understand yeah, they do. foundational to everything else. <laughs> You, you don't you didn't just though run a slate of technocrats who were sort of good at what they did. You had some rock stars who had great media presence, were very savvy out there campaigning. I mean, you have some real stars in the secretary of state offices around the country. I couldn't agree more, but they're rock stars who are also incredibly good at their job. Right. And uh, they are young. They are. That's part of my definition of rock star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not a Republican. I, I care about getting a job done. <laughs> no, I mean, they, they care. And like these, they all stepped up, right? They put their personal safety at risk to do this work because they care about democracy. And that comes through. People, voters want to be empowered. And that's why we won every single Democratic seat in the country, both protect and open seats, and flip Nevada. We beat election deniers in every single battleground state where they were on the ballot. So talk a little bit about the threats, because you said, you know, they put their personal safety on the line. And I know that it wasn't just the secretaries of state, but the, you know, the, the election workers themselves everywhere who faced threats of violence and intimidation. Yeah. You know, it is, I am continually impressed by election workers at every level from the folks stepping up to volunteer and work the polls to our secretaries who administer the overall election because the hate and the vitriol that they are on the receiving end these days is, is, is really disgusting and, and, and dangerous. And the fact that you have the election denier in chief running again and you have the misinformation and the lies being spread 
you are still seeing that level of violence. You know, already this year, there's been an arrest in New Mexico for an election denier shooting up uh, these election workers' homes and offices, still based on the 2020 election. We are trying to move forward, and they continue to want to re-litigate this race. And I think there's a lot of folks who are using it to fundraise. I think that's come out quite a bit. But there are people who believe them who are trying to take matters into their own hands. And that's where it gets really dangerous. Very dangerous. And you mentioned Christine Caramo. For example. She's now the GOP chair in Michigan. These people control their convention nominees. They have control of the state party platform. They are building election denialism into a pillar of their platform, further separating the the basis of reality when it comes to our election system. Once great political party is now this sham, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Could you, Kim, take a minute and tell me about you. How, did, how does somebody who clearly cares about our democracy, you know, of all the things that people do in politics, you found yourself, you know, building an organization to protect secretaries of state. What was your path? You know, I, you know, I, I think like a lot of uh, campaign people, I had an on-again, off-again relationship with college, started doing a a lot of political work. And, I mean, I fundamentally believe that government exists to work for people. And I think there's very few places where that is clearer than in these Secretary of State races where they count the votes. And each of those votes is a physical representation of a person. And that is such a representation of a collective power for, for me. And so when, after working in this business for over 20 years and following the 2020 race and just where we came out, uh, I, I was horrified by the lies and the violence, the attack on our capital. And I knew that they were not going to stop at anything and I felt that this was a place where I could make a real difference in shaping this level of the ballot, the narrative around it, and introducing this integral role to voters across the country. And, you know, I think I wanted to protect the people who protect our elections. So DAS was a natural fit for me. So for those of you who are listening, right, Kim's story is your story. It's everybody who says, I love this democracy. There's got to be a way for me to find my path to helping it stay strong. And I mean, Kim, you found yours. And I know a lot of you listening have found your own in volunteering on campaigns or sharing um, honest stories when faced with disinformation. It's, um, as Simon Rosenberg said just a few minutes ago, we all have to be out there making noise in the way we can to combat this, um, now my words, not his, this medieval cult 
that's coming at us from the right. <laughs> so, Kim, I'm really I'm just so appreciative of you and what you've done, your story and your time and the impact that you've had. Look forward uh, to the next election with us. What's uh, which are the battlegrounds? What do we need to think about? Who's in jeopardy? Where are our chances for picking up? Yeah. So I will say we had a, we had a huge year. Our map in 2022 was 27 races on the ballot. We've got three races in 2023, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Uh, I think there are some opportunities. Kentucky, Bashir is incredibly popular. He has some of the best favorables in the country as governor. And the incumbent Republican Secretary of State, you will not be shocked to learn, is being challenged from the right by an election denier. And we have a, we have a really young, dynamic candidate in Mississippi, Schwatsky Young, uh, a former Obama administration official, and just a really dynamic guy, understands the power of representation. Um, so we're excited about some of those races. Louisiana's still shaping up. They've got a later kind of top two primary. Uh, and then in 24, it's a... <laughs> We've only got seven races on our side for protect. We've got Oregon, Washington, Vermont, and then North Carolina. And then the Republican seats up in 24 are Missouri, uh, Montana, and West Virginia. So those are all states to really big Senate races, too. And I think that we will be watching for opportunities and looking at candidate recruitment uh, there. But I think, Edwin, really, as we are in 2023 and under a year out from the presidential primaries, one of the things that we need to do as secretaries of state and as DAF is really get out there. There is going to be so much noise and so so much misinformation that folks are going to hear about our election administration and our system. So we need to use the bully pulpit that we have had and that we earned in this last campaign talking directly to voters about the ways they can help protect democracy, the ways that the the checks and balances that already exist in our systems, the protections that are in place, and the the reality of the security of our elections. That is a role that the secretaries can play now to help inoculate our electoral system through what promises to be a contentious presidential election. So important. I mean, the lies have have already... um, uh, disenfranchised people have already made it harder to vote. I'm thinking now of, of all those kids on college campuses that will not be able to prove they live in a state because they've made it impossible, so they won't be able to vote. Uh, this, this is uh, this is a huge fight, and I'm thrilled that we have the talented secretaries of state we have raising these issues, and that you have given them the tools to um, keep in office and to, um, between elections, educate the public about this enormous role. And, and I will say, I know that it is scary because democracy is still under attack. And there are these laws and states and these battles trying to strip back access to the ballot. But our secretaries are also proactively out there in the states 
that we won. And it is incredibly exciting to see the work that they're doing. We just passed reenfranchisement in Minnesota. There's a huge omnibus pro-voter bill. And it was, there's a great bill moving through New Mexico, you know, being led by Secretary Toulouse Oliver there. Secretary Benson, I think we've mentioned her a few times, just advocating to fight misinformation campaigns and to implement that amazing pro-voter proposal that passed uh, last year in Michigan. Um, the new secretaries in Arizona, in Nevada, Adrian Fontes and Cisco Aguilar, are already putting forward regulations to protect election workers, uh, streamline voter registration, and working across party lines to combat disinformation. Uh, it's been really impressive to see them step up. Even in Connecticut, you know, brand new Secretary of State working to institute early voting that just passed the uh, mm-hmm. ballot last year as well. So we're really excited to see the hope. And honestly, it helps us contrast like what is possible when you elect a Democratic Secretary of State. More people get to participate in our process. And that's what democracy is all about. Yep. And they then they participate and it's fair and it's secure and it's safe. Kim, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today and sharing all of this with us. And I hope um, we can continue this conversation as the next cycle gets closer. I love that. Edwin, thank you for having me on and to all your listeners for all of the work that they do protecting our democracy and fighting for it every day. All right, everybody. That's Kim Rogers, the executive director of the Democratic Association of of Secretaries of State, DAS. You can go on their website, follow their work, help them out. It's so important. We're going to take a break for the news. And when we come back, Sarah Posner uh, joins us to uh, round out this collection of remarkable guests today. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Welcome back, everyone. And wow, this time has flown. But that's what you get when you get great guests. Um, 773-763-9278. I know you've probably put that in your speed dial. But for those of you who haven't, 773-763-9278. Don't call me right now. Because first, I'm going to talk to Sarah Posner. But after that, it's all yours. And I want to hear from you. Now, Sarah, who's joining me, um, is an investigative journalist and an author. Her widely cited work on the religious right and Republican politics has sort of brought her into, oh, well, she has, has brought them in, in you know, in, in, into the light of day, I think. Um, she joins me from time to time to talk about, you know, white Christian nationalism and occasionally the books that we've read in common. Um, Sarah, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me back, Edwin. I've been struggling with something and maybe you can help me. In in every battleground state in the midterms, voters rejected MAGA extremism. And, and nationally, voters have fled the MAGA GOP in such numbers that they've lost a bunch of elections in a row. In terms of popular majority, they simply can't aspire to winning a national election. And in, like in normal political environment, parties that can't command majorities rethink their identities and make concessions. I mean, 
Instead, the GOP has doubled down on extremism. Mm-hmm. There is, mm-hmm. There's just no political reason that makes any sense. You don't just double down on losing, at least not in a democracy. But there may be a theological or at least a theological-ish explanation. Can you, can you talk about that? Well, I think that the Republican Party has become increasingly dominated by people, politicians, who fancy themselves spiritual warriors on behalf of a Christian nation that's under siege by secularists or communists or George Soros or whatever the conspiracy theory um, that they've globbed onto is. Uh, And I think that that's a bit of a result of... um, the the Christian rights training of people to run for office who are um, politically minded that way. But I think it's also a consequence of the kind of, uh, let's call it, the grifter candidate that's becoming increasingly common in the Republican Party. George Santos and Donald Trump are the most uh, prominent Poster children of this. Yeah. I'm sorry. Poster children. Poster children, right. They're the most prominent examples. Poster children of this, right? Um, And here are two people who haven't really marinated themselves in evangelical churches, but they very quickly sort of caught on to the right things to say and how to appeal to that base. So I think you're having a combination of people who sort of came out of these training grounds for uh, spiritual warfare, you know, Christian nationalist uh, political candidates and uh, combining with that kind of uh, uh, grifter candidate that we're seeing more often. And I think that that is turning the party into um, it's just hardening the party's uh, stance on these issues. And I think that they just can't conceive of another way to run. They don't have any ideas. They don't have any policy positions. Um, and uh, this is what they've sunk to. Well, this, but this hardening is, I think, what they value more than winning. Um, well, more than winning through democratic means. But right. this hardening of identity is really what yeah. it's all about. Right. Right. I, I think it's a, it's a hardening of the um, idea that you will go on stage at a campaign event or at an event like CPAC or Value Voter Summit, things like that, and that you will say these things. Uh, America is a Christian nation. It's under siege by satanic liberals and, you know, and Democrats. And I am here. I will fight on your behalf. I will put on the armor of God and fight on the behalf of uh, Christian Americans who want to save their country and to get the adulation of the audience in those kinds of settings. This is, you know, this is kind of their main way of appealing to the base. Um, Speechless is a bad thing to be on the radio. Uh, you and I haven't spoken since the um, sort of MAGA takeover of the people's house. You know, I, I, I was mm-hmm. one of, of like the millions in the country who watched the spectacle of sort of the incredible shriek, shrinking speakership we mean, from the, the unbelievably talented, effective, important uh, uh, 
effort of Nancy Pelosi's to get just mm-hmm. incredible things done with a slim majority. We watched the speakership turn into, I just like melt away. Um, but, but I don't think we paid enough attention to the power that gave the Christian nationalist right. Like, what are they doing now? How have they, how are they impacting the efforts, for instance, to craft a budget in the House? Well, so first of all, I think something that's really important to understand about um, these kind of hardcore Christian nationalist members of the House, you're thinking of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Jim Banks from Indiana or Lauren Boebert. I mean, there are so many of them. Obviously, these are these are prominent people that came to mind, but almost all of the Republicans in the House would fall into this category, although some of them are more vocal about it than others. Um, and honestly, their main goal in being in holding political power is to deprive people who don't agree with their political and religious beliefs of their rights and to not only do that, but along the way, mock them and denigrate them and generate uh, support from their own base by doing that. I mean, I think it's really important to point out how much of this hinges on um, uh, being able to for them, from their perspective, uh, you know, being able to say nasty things on Twitter about people, to go on Fox News and insult people or to yell at liberal activists who are on the Hill and they're walking by them. I mean, these are all things that these uh, that these lawmakers have done. So they don't have they don't have any policy goals here with regard to, say, the budget. Right. All of their goals are to mess up uh mess up policy that's uh, driven from their political opponent, uh, political opponents and to just mm. mock them and denigrate them. There is no, there is no, I just don't understand there. it. I don't understand. I don't, I can't wrap my head around it, Sarah. I've read the gospels, you know, I, I've read acts. I, I've read uh, uh, actually Aquinas, which was a, not easy. Um, you know, and, I don't I see anything really that says denigrate people, treat people badly. That's the core of who we are. Like, I do not see that in any of what I understand Christianity to be. And granted, I probably don't understand it well. But I mean, I know there was a period when they burnt people at stakes. Is that where we're headed? Well, well, I mean, I think that to argue about what Christianity means with the Christian right is a fruitless exercise because they don't care. They don't care. And also it doesn't matter. The more important thing, because nobody's view of what Christianity is should be governing how policy and law is made in the United States of America. Right. If you as an right. individual lawmaker have religious beliefs and they enter into your mind when you're deciding whether a bill is fair or just or not, that's fine. That's, you know, freedom Guided of by your values is OK. Yep. Right. Right. So it doesn't really matter if you think they're wrong about Christianity. It, it does matter that they're wrong about democracy. They're wrong about the Constitution. That's the important. Boy, that is a good point. 
That is a good point. All right. So leave aside, you know, having having read the sacred texts and all and and the wise texts. I've also read the Constitution and the Federalist yes. Papers and a bunch of Supreme yes. Court cases. And there is yes. very little in what they're doing that it comports with that either. Right. And also, I mean, I think from a from a from a legal perspective, all those things are important. I think from a political perspective and how the Democrats are going to run campaigns in 2024 and beyond. It also matters that these people are horrible and nasty. Right. And so when you're politicking and you're trying to appeal to voters, I think that drawing that kind of contrast is also really important just from a pure uh, the standpoint of like the who, who's the more likable candidate, and I think that there's yeah, there's no joy in the Christian have, right. Yeah, but I think they obviously know something about their base that their base gets really riled up because their base has been fed this idea that you know Democrats are communists and socialists and satanic and they're against a Christian America and they're anti-God and they're anti-Christian. They've been fed that kind of propaganda for so long that they know that they can then denigrate Democrats and liberal ideas and make them really excited because they've been inculcated with this idea that those are the people who are destroying America. That's why it's so important for Democrats, for people who love their communities to run for office in every community in America. When people see their neighbors and see that they, you know, don't have horns, right. But they might disagree about something. People generally, uh, you know, are, are more open-minded than uh, the folks on Fox think we are. Well, and I think there's another thing at work here too, that I, I really want to mention in light of, uh, the just really vicious and horrible assaults on trans people and trans kids in particular that we're seeing that have been just escalating over the past, you know, five to 10 years, um, primarily in red state legislatures. And there's a lot of evidence that people knowing somebody who they think is from a group that they should be afraid of, um, knowing somebody from that group makes them more sympathetic and empathetic with them. Um, And so I do think that the sort of like combat mode needs to be, you know, obviously the Democrats need to be in combat mode with Republican lawmakers, right? Because this is, this is that they really need to take on every day, but there's also an element of it of, Maybe you can break through to voters who are thinking that all of these people are their enemy by showing them that they're not their enemy. Right. I think there's something to that. I don't know. I'm not a political strategist, but it was just something that like I've been thinking about a lot. Like, how do you get through to voters whose minds have been twisted and poisoned by this kind these kinds of ideas that, you know, secular people or trans people or gay people are their enemies or the enemies of America. How do you get through to them? And I I just think it's something important to think about. Yep. And I think we are starting to think about it. And one of the answers is we become a government that gets things done for people and makes their lives Mm -hmm. better. You know, and, and, and that, that turns out to matter a great deal and puts aside the venom. 
Um, and that's an old idea. I mean, but it's a, but it, it turns out to work. Hey, I want to ask you a different question there on the, um, we have now people going towards the Supreme Court, whether they'll get there or not, saying, for example, that the bans on abortion somehow impact their religious freedom. So mm-hmm. so what's going to happen with, I don't know, Amy Coney Barrett, when mm-hmm. um, when people seek uh, relief from religious restrictions, um, they seek the, to have their religious freedom expanded, but what they seek is relief from Christian nationalist ideology. Right. I think these are really interesting legal questions in light of the composition of the Supreme Court. So the current Supreme Court has vastly expanded religious freedom rights for conservative Christians who oppose abortion rights, uh, the right to contraception and LGBTQ rights. This is the area of religious freedom where they they view people who hold those kinds of ideological beliefs or religious beliefs as having some kind of like sacrosanct religious belief that deserves protection from, you know, the say the contraception requirement in right. the ACA, right? Um, and but now people of uh, a more liberal persuasion uh, in their religious beliefs are saying that abortion bans violate their religious freedom because they believe that women, their religious belief says that women should be able to make their own choices about uh, their uh, reproductive health. And And, I am very worried (laughs) that this Supreme Court would not be amenable to that argument because they don't view those kinds of religious beliefs as being what is termed in the law as sincerely held or in their minds legitimate. Um, Because to them, religious belief is equated with what we might just call for shorthand Christian nationalist ideas, but other religious beliefs are not in their minds really, really truly religious beliefs. I mean, you hear this, like you will hear Right-wing evangelicals say things like, you know, they don't really believe that mainline Protestants are actual Christians, right? So this is not, you know, this is something that is kind of out there. And you see conservative columnists who will write things like, well, you know, Reformed Jews aren't really real Jews. Um, and they just view more liberal versions of religion as not being actual religion. They view it as too watered down to be actual religion. Well, it's not really their call to make, is it? Of course it's not, right? But this is where we are now with the Christian right and with the Christian right's success in stacking the Supreme Court with justices who take their side on this. Is the Christian right um, responsible for the dismantling of public education in like Iowa and elsewhere? Well, I'm not familiar specifically with what's happening in Iowa at the moment, um, but the Christian right, a huge part of its agenda since its formation in the 1970s has been the dismantling of public education. So that's why you see, say, um, 
Christian right voters supporting somebody like Ron DeSantis, who's attacking public education in Florida. Um, why you see them getting very ginned up about these kind of anti-woke, don't say gay, those kinds of bills that DeSantis is championing. Um, because it's not because they really believe that their kids need to be protected from that stuff in public schools. They think that the public schools shouldn't even exist at all. So, um, you know, that everybody should be going to a Christian school. So, yes, uh, for many decades, attacking public education has been part of their agenda. And many times when they get swept up into uh, another policy uh, dispute, it often has an education angle to it, like the anti-woke stuff by DeSantis. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is why it kind of almost immediately appeals to them because it pushes those buttons about public education being bad. Well, so you have too. Oh, yeah, you've woken us all up to the sort of more teleological elements of this. You know, it's one thing to be like grounded in a particular fight about a bill, about a particular school, or even an argument about a particular book. But you said, look, there's an end to this. The country that they would create looks a certain way. And we need to understand that because like it's a thousand cuts and you may not pay attention while you're being cut. But at the end of the day, they would have a country that looks a certain way. Right. And so, and, and for them, they are playing a long game. They're not just thinking about the next election cycle. They are. They think about this in terms of decades or maybe even centuries, right? They spent 50 years um, aiming and succeeding at um, reversing Roe v. Wade. They were very patient. They did a lot of smaller things along the way, but the end goal was reversing Roe, right? So what they did along the way was restrict abortion access state by state, you know, you know, they tried to do it at a national level, but, you know, they work state by state on that, always coming up with new ways to restrict abortion access. Right. The same thing is true of public schools. Right. So they um, push the envelope on officially sanctioned school prayer in public schools. And they've been very successful in breaking down the wall of separation in that context and in other contexts, too. Right. So if public schools exist, they would like them to be public schools that, you know, teach Christianity, where the teachers can um, require students to pray, where the football coach can require the students to pray, where the principal can require the students to pray. But they know that that doesn't happen overnight because of the early 1960s Supreme Court cases on school prayer. Right. So they've been working at that for decades And they've been very successful at that for decades. But ultimately, they would prefer not to have public schools at all because they would like, you know, kids to just be in in Christian schools. But it's very hard to dismantle a, you know, public education system across the country. So in the meantime, it's very um, beneficial to them to uh, undermine the separation of church and state at the Supreme Court. Which is okay. Yeah. Well, in Arizona and in Iowa, they are dismantling public education pretty rapidly right now. So I'm terrifying. I, you know, I sometimes try and wonder, I'm not advocating pagan 
Satanism in any way. But I am trying to imagine this somewhat open-minded Romans faced with the certainty of, of Christianity coming towards it and how helpless they were in defending their culture um, against this new, um, very powerful religious certainty. And I wonder if there are lessons in some way for us. Yeah, I, wow, I never even thought about it that way. Um, But, I mean, I do think that this American version of uh, Christian nationalism is very unique to the United States. It was born here. (laughs) It was created here. And it's very specific to our political culture and our political structure. And uh, I don't know, I don't know what historical lessons may be out there for us, but I think we also have to really think about it um, in the context of the things that make the American system unique and our system of church-state separation and what we can do to revitalize. And that's like a really unique situation because of the uniqueness of our constitution and the way that they've um, assaulted it. Yeah. All right. Um, We only have a couple minutes left and I have to ask you this because we had this odd moment on a book that you and I were the only Americans who read um, (laughs) when last we spoke. What are you reading? What are you reading? Um, I'm reading some things that are, uh, much lighter than that book right now. Um, yep. Sometimes I just go into a, a mode of, um, of of reading something a little bit less. Uh, no reason to feel guilty about that. I read The Last Camel Dies at Noon and loved it. <laughs> just, <you laughs> um, right now I'm reading The Three Weissmans of Westport by Kathleen Shine. Mm. And it's just... It's just a, it's just a, you know, it's a, she writes lovely little novels about family relationships that are very poignant and true and insightful. And that's all it is. I, I, I think reading is something that we all need to do more of. I think it is enormously helpful to take us out of the fights we're in for a moment and let us mm-hmm. see um, uh, humanity from another set of perspectives. I'm also learning Spanish, so I've been trying to be very diligent about doing my Spanish lessons. That's also great. Do you have? Um, do you live in a community where there's a lot of Spanish spoken? Uh, yes, um, but uh, I'm also doing it for travel reasons. Um, but I'm using the Pimsleur method, and mm-hmm. um, oh, I don't know if I can make endorsements on your radio show. Um, <laughs> But I, you it can. Really works well for me. <laughs> it works yeah. well for me. I don't know that it would work well for everyone. I'm an auditory learner, so it works really good, well for me. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, it is a pleasure to catch up and to just to, I guess, struggle with you on the radio, which is a weird thing to do on radio. But uh, through these ideas of Christian nationalism and how they impact American democracy, uh, American law. Um, and um, our politics. I think it's yeah. you've had a f- fascinating seat in this um, theater. 
<laughs> and you've shared it with everybody. Really important work. Well, thank you. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. All right. We will do it again. Very good. Okay, everybody. That was Sarah Posner, uh, just terrific investigative journalist who has focused on the Christian nationalist right in America and how they have uh, influenced the Republican Party and what uh, their influence is more broadly on our politics and our society. We are going to take one more break. And when we come back, 773-763-9278. I want to hear from you about these topics. And if you want, we can talk about the Chicago mayoral election, too. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, and that number is 773-763-9278. Jim, welcome. Hi, Edwin. How are you? I guess the Supreme Court missed a memo. Two weeks ago, Pope Francis went out of his way. He says, we do not support an ideology right, left, up, down, in the middle, or anywhere else. We are in the business of preaching the gospel, which is love, night, neighbor, regardless of their uh, sexual, uh, whatever they are. You love your neighbor. That's the emphasis. The other thing I was going to say is I saw those people at the, with the CPAC meeting. I don't even remember. Remember the ZPAC in the 90s? You know, if you got the flu or something, you get the ZPAC. Yeah. To help yeah. You. To help the infection. Well, that's what I'm yep. passing out to see. At the CPAC meeting, they should have been passing out ZPACs. You know, to that's get them funny. Un- uninfected from uh, Fox News. And, uh, you know, we live in an age of uh, people, <laughs> believe me, Brian Bailey be having a field day. Anyway, you have a great show as usual, and thank you very much for you. Take care. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for listening, and yeah, CPAC is going on. I think Donald Trump is getting ready to speak there. It is his uh, organization now. Um, I think that's the one, if I remember correctly, and I may be wrong, but I think that's the one where the gold Trump idols were rolled around a couple of years ago. Um, it's just a thoroughly disgusting uh, spectacle. Paul, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi. I want, you know, I... Uh... Her, Marjorie Taylor Greene wants a, a national divorce, and I, I'm inclined to give it to her. In fact, I called her office and told, told him that, that uh, um, I, I have nothing in common with people in Georgia or Florida, or especially Florida. There's, I don't think anybody has anything in common with people in Florida, but um, we have to stop subsidizing fascism, and that's what blue states do. Illinois is a blue state. You look at the economics of the, of the states, the economic productivity, and a, and a good representation of what that was in the 2016 election. Uh, Hillary Clinton, or Donald Trump, let's say, start with him, won 2,600 counties across America, 2,600 counties, which accounted for 36% of the economic productivity. Hillary Clinton... She won just 500 counties across America. 500. That's what, that's, that's 20% of what, in terms of counties, which accounted for 64% of the economic production. And I tell you, if, if, if Marjorie Taylor Greene wants a divorce, she's going to lose her shorts because the red states can't survive without blue state subsidies. 
And so for these issues like all of the religious extremism, first of all, them dismantling education. And I, I don't know about Arizona. I did hear something about Iowa, but Ron DeSantos in Florida. I'll tell you, these states are going to end up with no teachers. Because I can't imagine, having been an educator myself, who the hell would want to teach there? I, I, they'll be losing. In fact, they're already in deficit, serious deficit. Um, I know in terms of how they're graduating teachers, they're graduating anywhere from 50% to 90% fewer teachers. I just heard a couple of years ago that, you know, I graduated, I finished my teacher preparation program in at Michigan State uh, back in the mid-80s, uh, 84. And uh, it was a huge program, very good program. Another college in Michigan, Grand Valley State College, which is a, a good teaching college. A couple of years like ago, Grand Valley State. About, yeah, Grand Valley State used to graduate about 200 teachers a year, and a couple of years ago, uh, it was in the paper that they graduated 20, 20. So people aren't going into it, and part of the reason is well, partly the pay, but partly this crap treatment that they can they know they can expect is just about anywhere, and especially in these red states. And I'll tell you, when I first got out of school, I couldn't find a teaching job except in South Carolina. And it was dirt poor pay, but I wasn't going to South Carolina. I could have gotten a job any day of the week in South Carolina. I actually took a lower paying job in Seattle. That's what I said. That's how badly I didn't want to go to South Carolina. I took a lower paying job in a much better place. And it wasn't Hmm. hard to get much lower than South Carolina, but you know what? Uh, those states are going to fall apart. I think that uh, this religious extremism, and I have to just finish up here by saying things like um, uh, abortion, these uh, LGBTQ challenges. Here's the question that the Supreme Court has really never satisfactorily answered for me is that what the hell standing does the state have in, or anybody have in challenging my wife or my daughter's uh, right to have an abortion. And isn't that denying her due process? In other words, you can't just make a law. Due process is because the fetus doesn't have any standing. A fetus isn't born yet. I and mean, the 14th Amendment clearly says to be entitled to uh, due process and equal protection of the laws, you have to first be section one. You have to be born. You have to be born in a state, and that entitles you to the uh, constitutional rights that the several states have under Article 4, Section 2. And a fetus doesn't have that because the fetus isn't born. So the states who, that are trying to, to outlaw abortion rights, really, if they have the right, the plenary power of the state, they should have to challenge every woman who wants to get an abortion before and 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 have to take that to court, give her due process, and say, this is why you should be stopped. And what is their standing? What is anybody standing because of their religious belief? Standing means, in just easy terms, three things. You have an injury, there is a cause, or somebody caused your injury, and there is some redress that the court can order. And what, in these religious situations, what they want to use the courts for is the old style courts of equity, which they want. They really want the courts to use injunctive power to stop people from doing something. They don't really want any money. They want to, and that's what the court, that's what they've done in weaponizing the Supreme Court 
All right, Paul, you've covered a lot of ground. Wait, hang on. You've covered a lot of ground here. I want to just go back and focus on one of the things that you've talked about. Okay. And that was, gee whiz, these states are going to run out of teachers. But what makes you think yeah. they care about them? What makes you think they want teachers? They actually want to give parents the money to homeschool the kids. The parents are happy to take it um, and, you know, buy a new car. Um, the kids suffer, but they don't care about public education. So why would they care if there's a teacher shortage? Well, that's, that's true, but they're going to care economically because that's 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 what I'm saying. Ultimately, no, that's a long game. That's a very long well, that's, game. Well, that's, that's that's not. No, I don't think that's a very long game at all. You're going to find out that their kids can't. Their their states don't have jobs to provide, and their kids don't qualify for jobs anywhere else. Because if you don't have an education, and parents want to homeschool them, they'll take the money. But here's the other thing about these charter schools that I've that they, you know, the charter schools as we see them now are actually a hybrid of two ideas. Because the charter school system, the charter school idea started back in the late 60s. I first heard about it when I was actually in elementary school, and one of my teachers said, you need to go someplace like Summerhill. Remember Summerhill was in England, and it was a kind of an alternative idea. And uh, that was, a charter school originally was a, a collection of classrooms, like a one wing of a school we were in four, probably three or four classrooms where they were doing experimental ideas and then sharing them with the rest of the teaching staff at, at teacher meeting, uh, teacher conference, and seeing if those... Yeah, well, that, that's not where we are. That's not where we right. are. Right. But then what happened was, then the religious right wanted their... They wanted, the next thing that came on was the voucher idea. And what people recognized was, oh, you mean my tax voucher doesn't even cover a quarter of what it costs to send my kids to school, even one of my kids to school, my property taxes really don't cover anything. Yeah, that's when they gave up. And I remember I taught at a private school back in the in the early 90s, and I said, yeah, we should become a voucher school, a private school. And the, and the director said, no, we would never become a voucher school. I said, well, why not? He said, because the people's taxes wouldn't, wouldn't cover the tuition here. Mm-hmm. We have to take mm-hmm. it. And so that's when they came up with the hybrid of what we now call a charter school is a public school where the, remember the phrase, the money should follow the kid. How much money should follow the kid? How much, how much money is calculated by the budget of a public school system, uh, which where it's uh, 15, $18,000 a year. How much, because you have all kinds of resources, all kinds of options, computers, you have uh, band, uh, music class. You have computer class. You have all kinds of things in public schools, and you think really that money should be should be handed over per kid to some charter school that meets uh, in a church basement? I'm sorry, that just doesn't. Well, some people some people do. Anyway, I'm gonna, I got to leave it there and yeah. move on. It's always good to catch up. Um, okay. well, I'm taking your calls at seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. Elaine, what is on your mind Hi. today? Hi, you know, um, thank you for taking my call. And I just wanted to say that, um, you know, of the many things that bothered me about Donald Trump, one of the big ones was that he never attended the inauguration of President Biden. And that is the peaceful transfer of power. He didn't attend that. So my fear is when I hear him kind of revving up again, and apparently, like, he's, I don't know if he's going up in the polls or not, Honestly, I believe if he were ever elected again, I believe he would never leave. <laughs> so, 
I just, I know of all the crazy things he did, and even if you take January 6th out of the equation, to me, the fact that he never attended the inauguration of President Biden is very frightening. That's all I have to say. Well, don't go away. Listen, he didn't attend because he didn't think, because he was claiming that President Biden wasn't president. He has never yet acknowledged that President Biden won, that President Biden is the legitimate president, even though everybody told him that, even though he knew it. He decided instead to lie in order to pervert our democracy. And this is what the fantastic work of the January 6th committee revealed to everybody, that he knew, that he lied, that he then tried to um, subvert the uh, electors, and then he tried to um, storm the Capitol uh, in order to stop the transfer of power. So it's not that he supports the peaceful transfer of power. It's that he actively undermined it um, because he thought he should be president for life. Exactly. So this is frightening because I know he's speaking at CPAC and I don't really care about CPAC, but. Good for you. (laughs) No, I just hope beyond I hope beyond belief that this guy never, ever gets close to the White House again, because that would really be a tragedy in America. It would. It would. And, Elaine, the the problem for all of us is that he he did manage to transform the Republican Party, because now all of its candidates stand behind the same anti-democratic thing. They all say, if I don't win, the election is fraudulent. They all say we have to change the laws when the elections are perfectly working perfectly well in order that the only people who get to vote are the ones who are going to vote for me. So in every way, uh, the legacy of Donald Trump has tainted the democracy. And here you have in Florida, Ron DeSantis enacting into law some of the things that Donald Trump could only talk about that make it harder for people to vote, that actively put, you know, create a state police effort to intimidate people from voting. Um, Really frightening stuff. I agree. I agree. Well, thank you for taking my call. And I like your show. Thank you. And where are you calling from? Chicago, Northwest side. Good. Great. Thank you for listening. All right. I'm taking your calls at 773-763-9278. Listen, I, I, um, I, I, I don't want to get in the way of your calls, but I do want to go back and point out some of the just remarkable things we heard in the last couple hours that we've had together. You know, um, I mean, when Tara McGowan got on and talked about how we have to rethink journalism to be more honest, and that doesn't mean what it used to mean. It doesn't mean that we pretend that there aren't points of view, but we instead acknowledge them. We say what our values are, and then we report and really report. What are the facts? And and dig in and tell those stories. And that doesn't mean it's partisan. It means you have some values, and you're telling people what they are so they can reflect on where you're coming from. And she's built an organization that while other news organizations are shrinking, hers is growing, growing all over the country, and hiring now. By the way, if you're a journalist, Go look at Courier Newsroom uh, because there are jobs there. Um, then we heard from Simon Rosenberg, a really remarkable man who's had such an impact on our country and, and on the way we practice our politics. 
And he's de- he's decided that everything he's done up to this point, as important as it's been, is not quite ready for the moment we're in, and it's time to do something different. Um, and boy, do I resonate with that, because as those of you who listen to this show know, I changed my life upside down when Donald Trump won, uh, um, gave up the businesses I was engaged in and came back here to fight for a common set of, of facts and a co- common sense in our politics again. So, so he's now upending his life again to focus on how do we save the democracy? How do we save the planet? And everything else, you know what, if we don't do those two things, well, the others aren't going to matter very much. There's a lesson there for the intrafamilial fights we Democrats often have. Let's keep our eye on the big picture. Um, I have more, but let me uh, turn to Marty. Hello, Marty. Hey there. How's it going? How are you guys today? I think we're good. Awesome. Where are you calling from, Marty? Uh, Chicago, South Side. Well, South Side. Good. All right. What's on your mind? Uh, Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, we mentioned, you know, just how the Trump administration subverted democracy in America. I was going to point that that spillover, I think the lasting legacy is the effects it'll have on already fragile democratic you know, countries, you know, where autocratic regimes can just, you know, deny the results of free and fair elections. And, you know, you you saw it in Brazil, you know, you you see this all over the place. And I think that that is one of the unfortunate, you know, unforeseen consequences of us electing, you know, an autocrat like Donald Trump is that, you know, it, it emboldens, you know, other regimes, you know, in, in more fragile countries that they can get away with these kind of, you know, shenanigans that we've just clearly, you know, let, you know, the Trump administration get away with, you know, I, I think without any accountability, um, I, I think that's going to be the un, unfortunate, unforeseen consequences is it just emboldens other countries to, you know, follow in the same suit. I don't know what say you. So, Marty, that's a really good point. America um, should never be in the business of exporting autocracy, right? Um, we, we are the, we are the oldest constitutional democracy in the world. We are the most successful one there's ever been in history. Throughout our history, we have expanded our franchise, um, to, to include more and more of our people in our, in our voting population. <clears throat> and, and we're on the verge of having the world's really first, only stable, multiracial, truly shared power democracy. It's a beautiful thing, right? And then along comes Donald Trump, and we start exporting autocracy. So Orban, who, if, you know, I mean, a NATO country, for gosh sakes, has 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 undone the democracy there. And in Turkey, um, uh, they have undone a lot of aspects of the democracy there. And and in our neighbor to the south, Mexico, you know, they, they fought to get it, their, get their democracy after pretending to have one for years with the PRI, and they got it, and now it's being undermined again. And Bibi Netanyahu, who's cast his lot with the Republican Party rather than with all of America, is trying to eviscerate the judiciary as an independent force in Israel. All of this um, was given comfort by Donald Trump and, and, and the, today's Republican Party. 
But I will say this. There's something else that we are exporting, because in 2017, right after Donald Trump was elected, we had the biggest rallies in the history of the world with the women's marches, right? There was 2.7 million people across this country um, out there spontaneously, and they turned all of that energy into political action. And we did something that very few countries have ever been able to do. We took when we elected somebody and gave him all the power of the presidency, and he was an autocrat, we threw him out. We threw him out. Um, And today, we are standing and fighting for our democracy, and we are fighting for it with vigor, and we're fighting for it in every community in the country. And you know what? Um, the, The guys who want to overturn it have a lot of levers yet to pull. They're still powerful, but we are fighting back, and we are fighting back effectively. And I hope, Marty, we export that too. And when you see the half a million people show up in Zocalo Square in Mexico City and the hundreds of thousands every day now protesting in Tel Aviv, I think, you know what? If we had caved and lost and Donald Trump was still president, that wouldn't have happened. So I think we are exporting optimism, too. I completely agree. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, I think that we all have to understand that you know, this, our, 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 trans, you know, we don't get everything right, but, but we all have to agree that our elections are pretty top notch and we know what we're doing and we've been doing this for a while and yep. we need to enshrine voter rights, you know, for every citizen here. And we need to work harder to ensure that laws are enacted that make it very difficult for, you know, right wing governors to just chip away at, you know, who and how people can vote, you know, it should be, it should be something that we're all just, you know, feel is our constitutional duty. And it should not be something that's, that, that, that's ever questioned or, you know, in any serious matter, if you're coming down to like a few hundred votes, you know, obviously whatever, but, you know, these people claim over and over again that there's election fraud and all of this other stuff when there's clearly not, it's clearly not a problem. Nobody wants to stand in line two or three times and wait, you know, however long it takes, you know, to vote two times. But yet they just repeat the same narrative, at, you know, ad nauseum. So, you know, we, we have to push back against that as well, too, and, and make people understand that what we're doing, you know, actually works. And it should be something that's replicated, you know, throughout the world, because, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a great way to ensure that everybody's voice is heard and that all of our interests are at, at the true core of, like, you know, what we're pushing forward. So, you know, hopefully. Totally right, Marty. Totally right. Totally right. And, and, you know, Kim Rogers, who is the executive director of the Democratic Association of Secretary of States, was on earlier. And she talked about the hard work that secretaries of state are doing across the country to run free and fair elections and to secure the franchise for the peoples in their states. And, and it, you know, it's one example of government working. But I want to say, Democrats in the last session of Congress, I'm as heartbroken as anybody that we didn't do more on voting rights, but we got a ton of stuff done, a ton of stuff done um, that will matter to Americans for years to come. So, so if you pay attention to governing, you not only get the voting right in America, but you get a lot of other things right, too. And, and I'm really proud of us. It, in spite of a threat that's as big a threat as we've ever faced, 
Americans all over the place are getting organized. They're participating. They are standing up and they're doing their job. And that is being seen around the world. And it's being seen, you know, in Tel Aviv and it's being seen in Mexico City. Um, I believe uh, it will have a, 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 an effect, although harder to do in Istanbul, um, it, it'll, it, you know, in in uh, uh, I don't know about Orban, frankly, I don't know if they're paying that much attention to us. But I know that it matters that we stay a strong democracy. Anyway, Marty, thank you. Really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. Well, um, I, I want you to know that um, uh, while we were on the phone just now, and while I was talking to M- Marty, I got a um, text from my friend Diane, who Text the following. Just back from the protest in Tel Aviv. Thanks for mentioning Bibi's travesty of a government. So um, I I guess, you know, what we talk about here um, matters. Diane, if you're still listening, uh, hang in there. You are the best. And the idea that you're out there uh, as busy as you are uh, protesting and trying to save the judiciary in in Israel. I am proud of you and that what you do uh, every day. Um, and you guys should know Diane. Oh, I won't because it's radio. I won't tell you who she is. Uh, she deserves your privacy. But just know that we're being heard in Tel Aviv right now, where they are protesting uh, and trying to save their democracy. There, that should inspire. And it's you know what's got to be the middle of the night. So that should inspire every one of you who's listening. We've talked all for. for three hours now today, about all of the positive ways people are getting involved, making noise, telling the truth, telling the truth that matters, standing up to the intimidation and the threats and the bullies from Florida to, uh, you name it, Mexico City, in order to preserve the kind of democracy where every person matters, not the theoretical people all together who somehow speak with one voice through an all-knowing tyrant, right? We've tried that a hundred years ago. It was a disaster. But a, but a society where every individual voice matters, if you have the courage to use it. So use yours. Use yours. Get involved. Say what you need to say. Be you, for gosh sakes. You don't have to be what they think you are. You be you, and you go out there and tell them that matters. And if you do that, we are going to save our democracy. And if we save our democracy, we'll do good things, like, for example, take on climate change. That's it for me today. Um, I've loved being with you. Happy March, everybody. Um, I will uh, be with you again next week, and we can continue this conversation. You take care.